Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Tacticam. Tacticam is by far the easiest way to begin filming your hunts. Whether it's the 4K 5.0 or the budget-friendly solo, Tacticam has something for everyone. Check them out at Tacticam.com. This year we're also working with Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge is machine learning for the deer woods. Basically, Spartan Forge takes collar deer studies, insurance car deer accident information, social media geolocations, and it couples that with weather, moon phase, and rut activity to tell you when or when not to be in the woods. This currently has an online interface at SpartanForge.ai, but the app is currently being built and set to launch late summer. Once the app goes live, you can expect there to be a price increase. But if you use code BOWHUNTER, you can save 25%, and that will stick with you as long as you use the Spartan Forge services. So head on over to SpartanForge.ai and get your free 14-day trial. I forgot to mention this on the last podcast intro, but we're still giving away that 2021 Bowtech Carbon Zion. So that's a brand new 60-pound Bowtech Carbon Zion with an HHA Tetra single pin sight and an HHA Res. So it's like $1,000 worth of bow, same bow that I'm going to be shooting this year. And we're giving away one for free. All you have to do is go to bowhunterchroniclespodcast.com up in the right-hand corner. Fill out the information for the bow giveaway. You can go to our Instagram, the link tree in the bio, the top one, it says Bowtech Carbon Zion Bow Giveaway. Click that, enter in the information, and you're all set. While you're there, you can also click on the link for the Patreon page. And Patreon is a crowdfunding for creators. Um, So basically, that's a way of saying thank you for everything that we do, but it helps us tremendously. It helps us pay for hosting fees, website fees, uh, 
Zoom fees, all everything that it costs for logistically to keep this podcast going. And so what we do is we use some of that money to give back. Coupled with our sponsors, Tacticam's giving away a fisheye package. So the Tacticam fisheyes, they're designed for fishing. They're wide-angle cameras. They have a loop mode. They have the ability to take external power. Um, they work with the remote. So if you had one of the 4K 5.0s, you could get the remote and you could use them in unison. One button turns both of them on. Um, but they're giving away one of those packages. We've used them turkey hunting. Uh, they're going to be a great addition for any bow hunter, and Tacticam's giving away one of those packages. We've purchased one of Dan Enfold's B stands, and we're on the list for that. So as soon as that gets to us, uh, we're going to be giving that away. In addition to that, we're partnered with Basemap. Basemap gives away one of their one-year paid subscription packages, and so that gets you all the maps, all the layers for the entire country. So... Uh, for an already incredible price, you know, Basemap has all these layers. Um, they have, you know, water, lake depths, river streams, public lands, all the landowner information at a fraction of the price of some of the other ones. And if you use code Chronicles, that'll save you 20%. So it ends up being $2 a month if you were going to pay for it. It's impossible to beat. So they give away one of those along with a hat and shirt, uh, swag pack. Spartan Forge, who we talked about in the intro, Spartan Forge is giving away a year subscription to their service as well. Um, that's hard to beat. I mean, Spartan Forge is really awesome. I'm really looking forward to when the app comes out. Uh, the app looks amazing. Uh, it's just a matter of getting it into our hands. And, uh, and Bill has actually uh, offered up a Zoom meeting for all of our Patreon. So if you have an interest in, you know, talking with the owner of the company and having it explained more, uh, get a hold of me. Uh, we're setting that up for our Patreons. It's just a matter of when the app goes live and getting to see all the functionality of that. Um, Zinger Fletchings, they're also great guys. They make 3D printed custom compression fit fletchings. Uh, so for guys that don't have time, for guys on the run, for guys um, that are traveling and uh, just want to throw a couple extra in their kit, um, these are a great option and they're giving away a set of their new 3D printed fletchings. Um, and so you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash bowhunter chronicles podcast. It's in the same link tree when you're signing up for that bow giveaway. Click on Patreon and check it out. But you know, we appreciate everybody that's listening. This podcast is a long one, but my goodness, there's so much good information in here. So interesting. Billy is so interesting. You know, we're talking about how to trap a falcon. Um, we talk about, um, you know, primitive weaponry, why sometimes he uses a crossbow recurve. He lives, you know, he works, he does all of these things and he still has time for, you know, falconry, jujitsu, killing, you know, hunting 300 days a year. Um, just an excellent podcast, but thank you guys so much for listening. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, Adam and John back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And we are going to be calling our good friend, Billy. Um, he is, uh, one of the hanging hunt podcast guys. He, uh, 
He's the other half of uh, Hunt Urban, and uh, he's one of the few guests that always requests uh, us to just call him, no lead-in, no anything. So uh, here we go. Who knows what we're going to get? Hello? How's it going? It's going. It's going. We are recording, and I saved this just for you. <laughs> oh, you didn't tell me you were doing that. I already opened mine. Hey, let let me reciprocate. <laughs> oh, man. So um, I just uh, told everybody that you are uh, one of the hosts of the new Hang and Hunt podcast. You happen to be uh, the other half or one of the guys from Hunt Urban. Um, they can see you in outdoor life from here to there. You're generally, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about like you, it seems like you're kind of a staple on the primitive pursuit podcast and the stuff that they're doing. Um, but yeah, how are you doing Billy? And, uh, kind of tell everybody who you are. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, well, I'm glad to be back. Um, I, I love talking to you guys. I was so bummed this year. I didn't get to hang out with you guys at ATA. I'm really bummed that last year we didn't get to go bow fishing for skate. Um, but besides that, that's coming up, by the way. Um, you know, besides that, um, yeah, my name is Billy Phillips. Um, I, like Adam said, I'm part of uh, the Hunt Urban crew, Taylor and I uh, mainly. We've got a bunch of other buddies that we hunt with in, in the burbs around Washington, D.C. for deer. We're mainly, you know, knocking the population down because it's we have up to 400 deer per square mile uh, a lot of people have heard that story um you know uh, we have a, a podcast out called the hang and hunt podcast uh we do a ton of saddle hunting that's where the hang is but then also i mean we just hang out and it's really unfiltered we just sit there and, and bs most of the time and sometimes we talk about a little bit of hunting well i was just going to say that's one of the things that i forgot i was going to give in the lead in i said that you're you're uh your likeness in other parts may be uh, archived at Disney uh, from security <laughs> camera footage. <laughs> Yo, I really, if that doesn't hit YouTube one day, I'll be blown away. I mean, it was a few years back. And for, for some of the listeners who didn't hear the story, I had a um, distressing issue at Disney World, a distressing bowel issue at Disney World. And um, yeah, it was a, it was a public experience. Um if you want to hear about that, it's it's uh, in great detail. Uh, uh, you may have to. I, I would probably keep your um, any squeamish people away from it. But uh, yeah, that that's in one of our episodes, and it was it was a doozy. And you, what's what's crazy is one of the one of the, <laughs> the things that that brought Taylor to the forefront of being a really funny guy is the time that he crapped his pants in a saddle, and <laughs> and. On that episode, we kind of somehow it, that came up, and then I just said, you know, I did that at Disney World one time, and then it just it snowballed from there. But uh, now you you brought up you brought up the Primitive Pursuit podcast. Um, uh, Mike and Chris, just super dudes, they came down a couple years ago to Virginia, and they wanted to see what Falconry was like, so they, they came down to a meet and in in harrisonburg virginia and i took him out and i, I actually wasn't even going to hunt that day because it was so windy it was we had like 30 40 mile an hour winds we were on top of this mountain and i'm, I'm hunting with a red-tailed hawk that 
They're known for soaring. I mean, you see them up a mile in the sky just soaring around. So when they get a little bit of wind, all they have to do this is spread their wings and they're up, right? Well, a bird like that, I mean, if it goes a half a mile away or three quarters of a mile away, I don't have GPS and telemetry on it. Some people do. I don't. Um, but if it gets that far away, I'm going to have a hard time finding it again. So they came down and they're like, come on, let's let's go out and hunt. So, well, I guess I got to do it. And it was sleeting and snowing and rainy. And we went out and toughed it out. And we had a couple chases here and there. And we weren't able to get anything that day. But Mike was so enthralled with it that he came down to the next meet in Blacksburg, Virginia. And we caught some game down there and he got to witness it, you know, firsthand. And he was totally hooked. Well, the president of the Virginia Falconers Association is a good buddy of mine. His name's Gene Stevens. And I introduced Gene to Mike. Well, they became friends. Gene became his sponsor. Now Mike is going into his second year of falconry and he's wild and in it, man. He, he's a, he's a really cool guy. Um, he obviously primitive pursuit. He's all into primitive hunting. Um, he naps his own arrowheads. Um, he makes his own bows and arrows. He, he does use uh, long bows and recurves that are, that are made, you know, um, from, from, production standpoint but he does like to make his own stuff he does a lot of trapping he's just he's one of those guys that you know if you were in a situation where apocalypse happens where you know nowadays we're kind of wondering if this is going to happen right he's the type of guy you're like oh i'm I'm so glad i know mike right he's going to be the guy where everyone's going to run to walking dead time and say hey you know you know we we all think we're cool and we think we're bad and tough but he literally will go out and say you know i'm going to live off the land for a month during my vacation you know he's that type of guy really really cool dude but um yeah he's he um he got me into uh he kind of pushed me back into getting into some um uh some flintlock and more more primitive gun hunting um and i was able to go down and i i ended up buying a flintlock squirrel rifle and took it down to florida this year for a turkey hunt which was awesome yeah i want to get into that a little bit because i mean i feel i don't know if john's up on that story but that's kind of like right up his alley i feel like not that it's a flintlock but it's just like this ridiculous custom old ass gun but that, I, I wanted to touch on and that was something in, in all of our our speakings last time we didn't get into the falconry thing so how did you get get into that or how does somebody even like approach that topic other than the way that you outlined like oh I just want to I'm gonna go get a bird and go hunt with it <laughs> yeah I mean and you know some people it, like if you just saw a hawk out in the wild and you knew nothing about falconry you wouldn't think to go and hunt with this bird right but i i read a book called my side of the mountain by gene craighead george and what, i think the, the book was uh, written back in the early 50s if i'm not mistaken and a brief synopsis a boy runs away from a, a large family he runs away from home and goes to the catskill mountains in new york and finds a peregrine falcon nest and takes a bird out of the nest and trains it to hunt with him. And he lives off the land in a tree. And it was a boyhood dream of mine to be able to live in wilderness on my own, live off the land. 
trap and hunt my food, gather and things like that. And he did it also and supplemented his his meals with what the falcon caught. And I was blown away. I ended up calling the Maryland DNR. I was, I don't know, 13 years old. And I said, I'd like to purchase a peregrine falcon. And the lady just <laughs> laughed and said, whoa, 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 hold on, time out. You can't just purchase a peregrine falcon. Little did I know at that point, they were an endangered species. You know, <laughs> DDT had come back and just wiped out like a lot of a lot of raptors. And she's like, all right, first time out, slow down. First of all, you have to have permits. You have to, at least I called them and didn't just go try to, <laughs> try to like take one, right? But she said, you have to have a permit. And she said, by the way, you have to at least be 14. I said, well, I'm 15. And I was like 11 or 12. I don't even know. So she sent me this package that was like a half an inch thick. And there was so much, there, were, there was so much in it detail wise, you know, just, just the laws and, and protections that were behind it. And I found out that, you know, I had to, it's really a, a very time consuming thing. You really have to dedicate a space in your home, a space on your property, uh, a, a couple hours every single day. You have to focus and you have to make sure that this thing, this bird is a part of your life. It's not a pet. It's not even remotely close to a pet where you can just say, well, I'm going on vacation. Can someone else come look at this thing? So I realized then when I was a kid that it wasn't going to be right to do this at that point. I was wrestling competitively from a very young age all the way through college. And that I was doing it year round. I knew I couldn't do it then. And then when I graduated, met my wife, we got settled. I finally got to a place where I was able to, I had enough room to do it and I could make some time. I, I went full bore and I went and did it. I, so how do you get into it? Well, um, real, real quick, like when you, when you said that, like, did you tell your wife like ahead of time, like we're going to get, as soon as we get settled, I'm going to get a, a Raptor. You know, my wife and I are really, really close. So from the very beginning, she knew that that was something that, that was on my mind. Uh, just like hunting was just like fishing. It wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't a separation between, you know, I really love to hunt. I love to be in the outdoors. I love to fish. I want to do falconry one day. I, you know, these are goals of my life. Um, there was no separation in that. And, and in my life, I've always I've tried to be realistic on if I can do a certain thing, I'm going to do it. Um, if I can, for example, when I, I moved to Atlanta right after college and we, it, I didn't have a place to deer hunt at all. So, I, and I wasn't really, I didn't really think about knocking on doors very much. And I, I worked at a Bass Pro Shop down there, met a couple guys that worked there who I'm still friends with to this day and that's 20 some years ago and you know they were able to take me out on certain properties i went to public lands but it was orange army and i really just i didn't have much success so i said you know i'm going to pass on hunting right now and i did a lot of fly fishing down there because it was two miles from the tattahoochee river so i i was able to kind of i guess adapt to that situation i knew i couldn't hunt very much so i fished a lot as soon as i moved back to virginia I found that there was this, this stupid overpopulation of deer. So, I mean, I haven't I've probably fly fished 10 times in 15 years because of that, because I've, that's all I do is deer hunt. And then again, evolving from that, once I was able to, I moved out of a townhouse and into a single family home and 
them a little bit more room and I was able to then say, hey, now it's time to uh, now it's time to get into the Falconry. But so my wife's always known that that, you know, those things were on my mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. And but we're, we're we have a pretty good open communication about about things. So it wasn't a big surprise to her that I was like, hey, by the way, tomorrow I'm, I'm going to go <laughs> trap a bird, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so so then that process. What what is the process once you, once you're you're all in? It's it's a it, it is a tedious process, and and I think they do it purposely. They don't want someone to just fly by night, come in and say, "Hey, I want to do falconry. Try it out." And then they're halfway through a season, they've got a bird that's under their care. They don't want to just they don't want to just let it go in the middle of winter when it may die, you know, because. Um, so, so raptors, especially I'll just make red tail hawks as an example, because it's the typical beginner falconry bird. And I say beginner bird because it's, it's one that is most readily available, not necessarily because it's a, it's like a, it's like a entry level. It's a, it's, it's a very capable hawk. So let's take red tail hawks, for example. Um, if you became an apprentice falconer, you passed tests. You had the state came out to your home. They gave, they did an inspection on your facility. They inspected your equipment. They, obviously they give you a test. You have to pass a test that's, put it this way. If you never studied for it and you didn't know anything about falconry, there's no way in the world you would ever be able to pass this thing. You have to actually know. So you have a, you also have a sponsor who's committed to, uh, being with you and, and helping you through the process for two years. So you have to set all this stuff up. You have to build a facility. You have to make the equipment before you can ever even get a permit, right? So you have to absolutely be serious about this. Once you actually get permitted and you are an apprentice falconer, you don't even have a bird yet. You have to go out and trap one. So there are many different ways to trap one. And, um, there's a lot online. I, I don't really like to get into super details about how it's done because I, I really don't want anyone to just go out there and just trap one and, you know, <laughs> possibly injure it. But there are traps out there that you can make. One's called a balchatri. Um, basically, it's a it's a small cage. You put a gerbil or a mouse or something like that in, and then it's a wire cage like a hardware cloth, and you put monofilament nooses or wire nooses all over this thing, right? And you, when you see the hawk that you want to trap, you get close enough to it, preferably in a vehicle or something like that. You drive by and you throw this thing out the window. You like frisbee it. So this gerbil is like frisbeeing through the air, <laughs> you know, landing softly, obviously, in, in the grass or whatever, right next to the road. And you have to do it in a way that the hawk doesn't see it. So you want to do it on the opposite side of the vehicle from the hawk. It's, it, you know, there's a little bit of a, there's a little stalking to it, even though you're in a vehicle. And so then you drive up like, you know, a couple hundred yards and park, hopefully safely in a back road or something, and get the binos out and watch. And the hawk, once it sees that gerbil in the trap, will come down and try to eat the gerbil. And it'll get caught in the monofilament nooses. And you haul ass back down there. And then you've got a hawk that <laughs> is... <laughs> not happy right because it has never been close to humans like this before it's got talons that will go through uh, it'll it'll go through two layers of elk hide uh and, and a glove i mean it you need to wear welder's gloves and then even if you do that if it gets you in a certain way especially the really big 
10 red tails, if they get you in a certain way, I mean, they could possibly break a finger. I mean, they're, they're, they're powerful. And this thing is like ready to, ready to fight. So you have to then know exactly what to do to untangle it safely without injuring it, not getting hurt yourself, not breaking any feathers. You have to be able to put a hood on it so it calms down, secure it, make sure it had you give a full health inspection, see if it's the hawk that you want. And if it's the hawk that you want, then you start putting equipment on it and you begin training right away. If it's not the hawk that you want, you let it go and you start all over again. What's the, what's the criteria of a hawk that you want or a good hawk versus a bad hawk? Well, um, typically you, a lot of people would like to have a larger hawk because they're able to, um, take squirrels a little bit easier. They have bigger feet. You want really big feet, really big, strong, thick, heavy feet, big talons. Um, that that's important for squirrels. Now, if you're in an area that has tons of rabbits, well, then you would never hunt squirrels. Squirrels are really dangerous. They're tree ninjas. I mean, they can, you, you've seen them. They're, I mean, they can bite through hickory nuts and things like that. So imagine what they can do to a toe of a bird. Um, it's, it's really exciting to hunt squirrels, but it's also dangerous for the hawks. So I prefer to hunt rabbits, but I don't know about you guys up in Michigan, but in Virginia and, and, and on the East Coast, rabbit populations have gone down significantly um and, and even out west there's a disease that's wiping out uh, rabbit populations so I'm, I, I'm worried for the future for rabbit hunting in general but so i like to get a big hawk that has big feet now uh, i'll preface this with if you've been driving my very first year i drove 1800 miles before i caught a hawk i drove roads for 1800 miles i mean every it was like after work, in the mornings before work, on the weekends, all weekend long, I was just driving and driving and driving and driving. Finally, 1,800 miles later, I was able to catch a hawk. So, and that was, that was my first year, so I didn't really know what I was doing. But also, I, I was going to take the first one, and that, and that very first one was tiny. It was like <laughs> a, a 29, I think it flew at 29 or 28 ounces, and the one that I flew this past year flew at, over 40 ounces and Mike's bird. I think his bird flew this year at like 50 ounces. So there's a big swing on the size of, of, of bird. So, you know, a bird in the hands worth two in the bush. So to answer your question, but if you had to pick and choose, you'd pick a bigger one. So all this 1800 miles, you're riding side saddle with the fucking gerbil wrapped <laughs> up in monofilament. Like, did you get pulled over in that like time frame? Yeah. And you had to say like, uh, well, funny you say that. Yeah, because that actually has happened. Um, you're on you're on the highway, right? And like, there's there's definitely a gray area there. I mean, it's it's common that falconers do hunt from roads and things like that. But you're not going down the interstate and throwing a trap out, you know, while people are whizzing by at seventy some miles an hour, right? But, in, the, in the DC area, so, yeah, especially around DC, right? So I I, I did have it happen once where um it was on a road that it was 45 miles an hour but it was it wasn't very busy and i trapped a hawk hawk for another guy another falconer um he was desperately trying to find a bird we trapped this bird and we saw the bird hit the hit the trap and he gets caught so we haul ass back there and a car pulls up next to it and we 
I said, Hey, we're federally licensed falconers. This is our trap. We haven't. And they're like, Oh, we just wanted to make sure we saw it was in distress. And, you know, I said, okay, no problem. They ended up calling the police. (laughs) So, and we're, we're being really quick about it, but there must've been a cop close by because the cop rolls up and he's like, what are you guys doing? You know, those are protected. I said, Hey, we're federally licensed. He said, prove it. We pulled out our falconry licenses and, and, you know, he looked through and he's like, uh, are you sure you're allowed to do this? I'm like, look, man, I'm like, oh gosh, this is, this is going down the wrong road. But then we started talking about, you know, the process and I said, and he he was actually cool. He was more interested than anything else, but I definitely, I was, I was a little worried there. You know, one of the, the safer way to trap hawks is, from an actual trap site. This is a another cool way that, that it's done. Um, it's very, very difficult to find a good trap site. Like, I mean, needle in a haystack. It's it's more important than finding the like the kill tree on your property. It's so difficult to find a place. So typically you need to have a migration route and then you need to find a pinch point on a migration route for birds so imagine imagine how difficult that is <laughs> on, a, on a grand scheme of birds going thousands of miles okay find their pinch point there's only a few right so and then you need to get permission on the property that's on the ground under that pin, aerial pinch point so um so a lot of times on ridges they'll they'll come down ridges and we have actually a couple ridge sites where you set up a blind your regular deer hunting blind and um, you have this apparatus outside. It's, I don't even want to get into how complicated it is, but there's poles, ropes, strings, pigeons, and nets, and, and <laughs> bow nets out there. It, is, it, is, it takes an hour and a half to set up. It is a pain in the ass. You get out there super early, and you're in a blind for you know 12 hours. You get out there, and you're, you've got a pigeon on a string, and you're flapping it, and these hawks and falcons come down and try to kill your pigeon because they, they think it's in distress. And as it comes in, you pull your pigeon closer to your trap. And then as that raptor comes into the to the pigeon, you spring your trap and catch it in a bow net. It's it's exciting as hell and crazy. Is I mean it's super crazy, but that's a hell of a lot of fun and a cool way to do it. I'm gonna try to get some video of it uh this upcoming fall because it's a blast. Sounds like something that Wiley Coyote would set up, like, like <laughs> acne. acne. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've got my acne nets. Yeah, it does work though. I mean, it, we will catch anywhere from you know three or four to a couple dozen raptors in a day. And so, what's the process of like training this thing to come back to you? Like, I mean, so you you've <laughs> you've, you've you've just like said, uh, "Aha, I've got you," and and, mm-hmm. uh, and this thing is not. I mean, these it's are predators. Wild. These are predators. So very wild. So then well. how do they come or where is this codependence lie or how, how does that, I have to imagine it's a relationship build. Very much. Very much. You, you hit it on the head. There is a codependence in a, in a relationship and it's built on trust. There is no way that you can make a bird like that. Um, I don't know, submissive, you know, some people back in the day would turn a dog like a puppy on its back. And, and when it stopped wiggling, then the dog will be more submissive. You know, you can't do that with one of these animals. So you have to actually have that thing on your fist, 
and get it to trust you enough that it'll stay there without trying to fly off. That's the first step. The second step is to try to get it to eat from your fist, to actually try to get it to, you can actually feed it, you can give it food and it will eat it and swallow it. Once it does that, then you build from there. Once it understands, okay, this thing's not trying to kill me because you can, the, the very first time you have a hawk on your fist and it's standing there, you can take a piece of meat and put it in its open beak because their, their mouth is wide open, their wings are wide apart. You can put a piece of meat in its mouth and it will just keep its mouth open and not move. But if you stick your finger in there, it'll bite you, right? <laughs> but it will not eat that meat, no matter how delicious it is, no matter how hungry it is. It just doesn't trust you and it's, it's frightened. So you dim lights, you calm it down, and you have it on your fist and you spend hours, literally hours, getting that bird to understand that you're not going to kill it. You don't look it in the eyes. You don't try to intimidate it. You just, you're basically a, a tree branch. I mean, you're a moving tree branch, but you, it figures out you're not going to hurt it. And then it figures out that, oh, you've got food and I can eat it. And it eats and you're a perch. And then from there, you build to the point where you get it to, you put food on your fist and have it actually bend down and take its eyes off of you to eat. And then once, once it actually takes its eyes off of you and it's eating and you're within a foot or two of it, you've built trust right there. You still have to build more, but you've built enough trust that it knows you're not going to just bite its head off when it turns the other way. And then you progressively tiny baby step by baby step, get it to step up to your fist for food. And then you get it to hop. Then you get it to fly a foot or two. Then you get it to fly five feet. Then you take it outside and you put it on a string, a creance that uh, it, it can't fly away. Um, but you put it on a perch and it's attached to this line and it flies to you for food over a period of two or three weeks. And then once it's flying a certain distance, to you for food and it trusts you and it comes to you and it's it's pretty much automatic well you cut that you cut the uh the leashes and you cut everything and you let it fly on its own it's very similar to the way you've been training it and have it fly to you without any connection whatsoever once you do that you do the same exact thing but you put game under it and if you can flush a rabbit under it while it's thinking, oh, I'm just going to fly to this stupid human for food. Well, there's a rabbit and it, it and it hits a rabbit and kills a rabbit. Then it knows, OK, I can hunt with this person, too. Then you start kicking up game for it and it realizes, OK, this guy doesn't kill me. He's a perch for me. He feeds me and he kicks up game for me. I'll hang around him and I'll follow him all around any field that he goes to because it's food and shelter and, and protection. The bird will, they're, they're not a very smart animal, but they're smart enough to realize that this is a positive relationship for them and they'll just follow you ever. So you take it one step further though. Don't you hunt with the dog too, with the bird? Yeah, that, that can be a challenge because you have to get the bird then to trust that the dog's not going to kill it or that the dog's not going to take the game that it, that it, that it killed. What about and the, the, what about the taking the dog? dog? Yeah, like, you know, like, I, oh, I've got that. this. I've got this Jack Russell Terrier. His name's Fisher, and he is the biggest pain in the ass in the world. <laughs> he is so awesome, but he's the biggest pain in the ass. He's killed. I can't tell you how many chickens. My wife's chickens. He's gotten out and and 
he kind of maybe maimed a neighbor's duck. Um, we, I, I think I may have to go to court for him because he's gotten out a couple times. Like it's, he's, he's, he's a maniac, but everything's secure now. Like he can't get out. Right. Um, but it's like, you, you let him outside. And if you're not hunting with him, cause he's trained to hunt, right? If you're not hunting with him right then and there, he's going to go and hunt himself. So it's really funny though, Fisher, the, he was a puppy and I took him out with a hawk and he found a rabbit but, and he saw it before the hawk did. And he went after the rabbit. The hawk came down out of the tree and put his, ta- put her talons right in the back of his head and kind of like leapfrogged off of him, kept flying and killed the rabbit. <laughs> Ever since then, and he yipped and yelped. It was like, ever since then, he won't get close. He won't get close enough to get hurt, right? I've actually, when, there was one time where I had mistakenly, um, I, I fed the hawk and I left the gate open. I was coming in and out, putting water and, you know, and, and cleaning and things like that. But I, I, I never, I try not to ever keep the gate open while I can't see what's going on there, you know? And I inadvertently left it open. Well, Fisher goes in there and sits next to the hawk and the hawk's sitting there. I mean, they're sitting side by side within two feet of each other, just chilling. And, and I mean, if it was a chicken, he would have killed it and eaten it. But he knows that there's a danger level there and he knows <laughs> not to, not to cross that line. And in fact, there was a week, the hawk killed her. Uh, one of the one of the rabbits she killed this year. I took a picture of it, and I made Fisher and forced him to sit next to her uh, um, on on a log. And I got him a little closer than he wanted to be. And th- there's like a series of pictures. And the best picture I I posted like on Instagram or whatever. But there's a bunch of pictures where he's like ears are back and he's looking at that hawk like, oh please, please, I know I'm close to you. Please don't hit me. Please don't hit me. You know, but. It was funny. After he got hit, it took about five seconds for him to go, okay, let's go chase another rabbit. I mean, he's a, he's a terrier. They're just savages. That whole, that's a whole new level of falconry, though, when you get into, like, bird dogs and stuff like that. So When you, obviously, you, you catch this bird, how, how, what is, like, the, the timeline? Like, and how long do you keep it or train it? Or, and have you had it to the point where, like, well, this bird just isn't going to work out? Yeah. Um, yes to all. Um, so typically you want, the, you want to trap a bird, you want it to be, um, eating from your hand within a couple days. You want it to be hopping to your fist within five days to a week. You want it to be flying to you within, let's say eight to 10 days. Um, you want to be outside flying on a crayons within two weeks. You want to be hunting, I would say, no longer than five to six weeks. You should probably be hunting. Now, there are so many different factors that come into this, and there are different personalities of birds. Or different. There are so many different things that can go into that, but I'd say on average, from the time you trap five or six weeks, you're probably hunting or close to it. Um, the bird gets better and better, and you get better and better with that bird throughout the season. Some people will keep their bird and they call it intermewing and they'll intermew a bird and let it go through the molt and they'll, they'll keep it in captivity throughout the spring and summer. And then into the fall, they'll start hunting it again. 
and and that's an advantage because you're basically you know a week or so and you're back into hunting as long as the bird is fit and and in shape and ready to hunt you're ready to hunt really really soon so you don't have to go through that five or six or eight or ten week training process um but you did go through a whole summer where you're not allowed to hunt there's no game that you can hunt and plus they're going through the molt so typically what i'll do what i really like to do what, what gets me is training a bird for that fall into the winter hunting it for a couple months and then once it gets nice outside and there's a lot of game for it to catch i release the bird and it can go out and and then hopefully it can give them to the breeding population later on and it gives it a leg up really on on a lot of the other the other raptors because <clears throat> in the first year a red-tailed hawk for example since i've been talking about them they have up to a 80 percent mortality rate in their first year so if i trap one odds are 80 percent chance it would have died anyway and probably starved or gotten killed by another raptor or hit by a car or whatever um 80 chance it would have died so i in the spring when i release them there they've had vet care they've had i mean meals constantly they've had they're in perfect feather perfect condition um they're in shape they're ready to go and you know they've got a leg up on all these other hawks that have uh, had a difficult winter <laughs> when my hawk has had you know a stellar winter and killed tons of game and and been fed and and had a you know when it got really nasty and really super cold i'd bring it inside so it didn't get too cold you know so they get pampered but uh so th that's kind of the timeline um you know that a lot of brand new falconers will have difficulty and you know it might take them two months to get a bird flying and hunting and I mean, that that's it, it does happen i mean that's pretty common because there are so many different factors to it but you know when a boil when it when it really comes down to it, when you start to do it a lot um you just trust the process even when you're frustrated and it, and it ends up happening i mean it's like it's like you know shooting a bow and and i know adam you're getting into to traditional I, I know you're trying to kill turkey with one this year that's a process man i mean it's and you have to trust the process it's like you know you wish you had Tom Clum sitting there as your apprentice all the time when you're trying to, to, to shoot that recurve. And that's kind of what you have when you're in falconry. You literally have a sponsor who's over your shoulder kind of guiding you along and helping you along. And, you you know, that, that's it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do it. It'd be too difficult to do. And, you'd be, you know, you'd kill animals and you'd, you'd just be unsuccessful and it wouldn't be worth it if you didn't have a sponsor. That was like the answer to, I mean, the ultimate answer for that question. Cause I was like, man, so how long do you actually keep one? Do you, do you catch one and keep it till it dies? I mean, some people do, John. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in captivity, a red tail will live 20 plus years in captivity and you can hunt one absolutely for that long. Okay. And, and there's, and there's no law against that whatsoever. <clears throat> now, the other on the other side of that is you know as a falconer as i'm a general falconer now next year i have the opportunity to, to become a master falconer which that'd be a name totally and not not in, not in description <laughs> without a doubt right but um i i can actually go out and buy raptors so i can buy 
an imprint or a chamber, um, um, I'm sorry, a captive raised um, falcon or hawk. I can buy, I can buy them now. And that's a whole different ball of wax. Once you buy a captive bird, you can never release it so that you do keep that bird for its entire life or you sell it or, or give it away or trade it or whatever. Depending on the laws, there's a bunch of different laws. You have to be really careful with what you're doing there. But um, yeah, if, if you have a bird that's captive bred, it's never able to be released ever. Now it can be lost. You know, they, they do get lost sometimes because they're a bird and they can fly from hundreds of miles if they want to. But um, yeah, you can absolutely, uh, you can, you can release a bird that you caught in the wild that you caught in the wild. But if you take a bird out of a nest and it imprints on you, for example, then that bird is not a natural wild bird. That bird can never be re-released into the wild also. If I were you, if I were in your position, I would 100% do that. And then I'd call up the uh, Virginia DNR and I'd be like, ring, ring, ring. Like, uh, yeah, this is Billy Phillips. Remember me? I called 35 years ago. I would like to buy that Peregrine Falcon now. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny because now you can do it. I mean, this, this is a recent, that's a really recent thing that, that's uh, been allowed. I mean, my my sponsor... Uh, he's now passed away. He was a he was a great dude. Uh, he was a, one of the pioneers of falconry in America, um, and he actually helped out. He was uh, he got his PhD at Cornell and participated in breeding of falcons and hawks at Cornell. And it's one of the things that he uh, he said is back then, before the Lacey Act was in was was involved, there was no. And before these before these laws and protection laws were were in place, there were no laws. You could just, you know, you could shoot a raptor if you wanted to. You could trap one. You could train one. You could keep one. There were no laws for or against it. Um, and when he really got big into falconry, uh, he flew peregrines on sage grouse in Wyoming. And Back then, you when they were endangered, you couldn't get one. So you had to buy imprint birds. And when you were able to finally, finally get a permit to trap one, there was, and when I say a permit to trap one, there's like, I think in Virginia, there's maybe two or three permits per year to trap a peregrine falcon. And if, let's say, 30 people apply and 30 people get permission to do it, once you know, those two or three permits are filled. Everyone else just takes their permits and tears them up into tag soup. So he was he was fortunate enough to be able to uh, to, to trap a peregrine. And it took him eight days um, on, I think it was on the eastern shore of Virginia. I can't remember if it was Virginia or Maryland, but eight days in a blind with pigeons in the same kind of ridge trapping scenario I was telling you about. And he did not see a peregrine. For the entire time, except the last hour of the last day. I mean, it's that you, you hear that all the time. And you guys, I'm sure you've been there on the last hour of the last day. One female peregrine came in and he was able to trap it. And he had that bird for a couple of years and, and hunted it in Wyoming. But it was a, having a peregrine is really, really special. Not only because it's the fastest animal on earth and it's the quintessential falconry hawk, but 
it's also special because they've been endangered and protected for so long, and now we're finally able to actually fly. Pretty cool. Now, I have a question just about birds in general. And, like, it would have to, I mean, I would think it would, like, make you mad or piss you off, or maybe it's just a regular deal. But why is it that there's always these little, like, cowbirds and shit chasing around the what I would consider hawks or, or whatever? Dude, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I I have no clue. I mean, I, I, I think part of it, just my idea from seeing these hawks fly around and stuff is because um, those little birds can't they can get away from these hawks. Now you will never see one of those little Tweety birds chasing a goshawk, a sharp shinned hawk or a Cooper's hawk, because they will absolutely turn around and fly it down and catch it. And eat. You know, <laughs> they will, they'll, they'll do that to crows. They'll do it to red tails and hawks and eagles and because they're, they're slower. They're, you know, they, they're not as agile as a little tiny Tweety bird. You know, they're just ripping fast, super, super quick. Well, those other hawks that I mentioned, goshawk, Cooper's hawks, and sharpshin hawks, they are like the Lamborghini, the, you know, Ferrari, and the Porsche twin turbo of, of hawks. I mean, they are like a zillion miles an hour right now. And they're and they catch birds. That's what they do. You know, they're well. Goss goshawks will catch, you know, um, hares and, and snowshoe hares and rabbits and things like that too. But they can also, I mean, a goshawk can catch quail off the fist. Like you're holding it on the fist. Any any of those three birds, you're holding it on the fist, and quail flush up. You know how fast they are, and they're so fast that they can actually overtake the quail in the air within twenty or thirty or forty yards. <laughs> Holy I mean, they're just, yeah, they're, it's, it's like a rocket ship off coming off your arm. You can't even, you can't even, um, you're not fast enough mentally. These, when the quail flush, the bird's already gone. And then you realize the quail flush and the bird's already chasing. Them. That's how fast they are. It's just, it's hardwired in their brains to, it's like an explosion. It's, I mean, it's, it's instantaneous and they're just super fast, which, and they're maniacs. I've never flown either either one of those. They're called excipiters. They're actually called the true hawks uh, in, in in the raptor world. And I've I've never flown one, but I did. I, I hunted with a buddy of mine, and he's got a freaking awesome um, Instagram page, and it's called um, NJ underscore Falconry. I'm I'm pretty sure his name's Casey Everett. And he flies a Siberian goshawk cross. It's all white. And she is just this white death monster. I mean, she is, she, she, he's, he's taken geese. It hit uh, a couple turkeys this year. Um, he's taken dozens of dozens and dozens of ducks, rabbits, squirrels. I mean, this bird is a monster. And I watched it this year. This is no BS. I watched it this year in Maryland at the Maryland Falconry meet in the Potomac Falconers Association meet a rabbit. Rabbits are smart. You wouldn't think they are, but they're smart. If they're getting pursued in the air, they will run into the wind because they know it's difficult for uh, an avian predator to fight into the wind to be able to catch it. So I saw this and I'm watching this, this rabbit busted out of the brush and the hawk wasn't ready for it. 
and turned and looked and saw it. And this rabbit was already halfway to this pile of um, like telephone poles. And that goshawk just took off after it into the wind and powered through into the wind and caught it still 10 feet away from this pile of telephone poles. It was the most amazing, like it, it was amazing just to see that type of athleticism and power and speed and something like that and, and aggressiveness, which is ferocious, man. If there was, if you wanted to name like a badass broadhead or something or a bow or some type of badass arrow, something like that, if you wanted to name it the baddest ass thing, name it a goshawk because that's the baddest mother jumper in the world. <laughs> Now, with uh, you know, you're you're talking about these these different kind of hawks and falcons, and you know, you're talking about these hawks as like the Lamborghinis, the Ferraris, and all of this stuff. And you're driving around trying to catch, you know, say your first hawk, and you or whatever. Like, are you able to identify like which type of bird it is before you throw the gerbil to the wind, so to speak? Oh yeah. N- now now I am. I mean, but now I am. Yes. I, when I first became an apprentice falconer i could tell a red-tailed hawk from let's say a different you know like i get uh, maybe a red shoulder like I, I but i wasn't very good at it you know now that i've i've been trapping for years now like four years now and i've trapped a bunch a bunch of different hawks and i've seen them up close and handled them now i can tell and if i see a, if i see a bird flying I instantly can see and tell what type of bird that is, usually. Well, I just ask because of, like, um, I think of, like, you know, on some level, like, when you're fishing, you know, you're targeting Mm -hmm. a certain species, but you could accidentally catch, you know, whatever that's not in season or whatever, and you have to let it go, etc. So does that happen where you catch the wrong hawk or, you know, an owl or, you know, whatever? Yeah, actually, you know, it's funny. I'm going to send you the picture. My buddy's got a, it's a private Instagram account and because he's in um, government service, so he doesn't post things, but I'll make sure that he allows me to share this picture and I'll send it to you. He was fishing on his pond and this is, he trapped one, right? But he's fishing on his pond using a, uh, some type of a topwater bait and a barred owl came down and hit his bait in the water and got snagged on the treble hook and and um he called me he called me this is just tonight called me and was like what the heck should i do and but i was on the mower and stuff like that so when i got back to him he said i threw a sheet over it was able to get it unhooked and everything and it was it was no worse for the wear but so do, do things like that happen yes absolutely when you're road trapping typically you will put binoculars on a bird and see okay that's a red-tailed hawk. I I want it. I want a red tail. But then you look and see: is it a mature bird or is it a juvenile bird? Because you're, it's illegal to capture and uh, and and take a, a mature bird because you're taking one out of the breeding population, basically. But um, so you have to identify if it's not only just a red tail, but is it mature or is it a juvenile? And there have been times where I. I've seen a juvenile. I say, okay, I want to go trap that bird. I throw a trap out and a mature bird comes down instead or a different type of hawk that I'm not targeting comes down instead. And when you trap them, it's the same process. You still give them a, a, a full check 
you make sure they're not injured. You you make sure they're in good health and things like that, and then you release them. And if if they are in bad poor health, then you can always we have vets that we work with and and wildlife rehab folks. So if there's one that's damaged or hurt in any way, um, or emaciated and stuff, we can usually take them and help them out too. But uh, sometimes up on the ridge when we when we're trapping, well actually all the time on the ridge when we're trapping, we're, we're I, I'm focused on getting a red tail, but we've had golden eagles come in. And when a golden eagle comes in, look, I don't want to mess with that thing. I, I don't. <laughs> they you whoop know. your ass. <laughs> Gee, I mean, a golden eagle's talons. Look at your hand. Now you can't say John's because John's fingers are probably seven inches long. But you know, on a normal human being's fingers, they're about you know three or four inches long, and that's how long a a golden eagle's talons are. They're three or four inches long i mean if that sucker got you in the neck somewhere it could really do some major damage and the power in their feet are enough that they can literally break bones you know if they grabbed you by the hand i don't care if you have triple thick welding gloves on if they want to squeeze and they get you in a certain way they can break bones in your hands it's that powerful so yeah we've had golden eagles come in and when they come in we jump out of the blind and we just shoo them off and scare them and you yell at them and, and get them to fly away uh, because we don't want to catch them. You know? If I had a permit for them, I might, you know, that'd be a different story. But, you know, when they come in, it's they're more of a pain in the butt than anything else. Uh, we had we had uh, a couple of peregrine falcons uh, swooping in um, this the very last time that I that I ridge trapped. And I did not want to catch them. I didn't have a permit for them. I didn't want to catch them. So we went out and scared them off. Um, but sometimes it just happens. The Cooper socks come in all the time. And they're so fast that they're on your pigeon before you can even get it to your to your net. So you're trying to get it to your net as fast as you can before it kills the pigeon. You know, and then you then you spring the trap and get out there and make sure the the Cooper's hawk is in good health, and then you release it. But yeah, that does happen. So what is uh? A golden eagle is that just an immature? No. It's a... Okay, it's not an immature oh, it's a, bald it's eagle. It's a separate. It's a separate species of eagle, completely separate. The the reason that I ask is we were up at our property in the UP years ago, a dozen years ago now, and uh, there was a bald eagle and then two other really big birds flying around. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And that night I went out and hunted, and I was sitting up on my tree stand. And, like, I heard this, like, and then one of those birds that wasn't the bald eagle, and I thought it was a golden eagle, but I thought it was just an immature bald eagle Mm because it didn't have white head or feathers or anything, but it was about three feet tall. (laughs) I don't Mm -hmm. know. but And it landed about three feet above me in the tree. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I don't know what to do. Don't look at it. (laughs) I was like, I don't know what to do, you know. So yeah, don't don't grab its feet. Let me just give you some <laughs> advice. Yeah, um, but, I you know most likely I would guess that that was that was a, probably an immature bald eagle. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you know just a random layman looked at the difference between you know an immature golden eagle or a gold any golden eagle, but especially an immature golden and an immature bald eagle, they are very similar. They're very similar in size. They're v- similar in color. Um, they have a different pattern when it comes to the white that, that they have on them. Uh, uh, 
bald eagles would be a lot more modeled, but it, it's, it is difficult to tell a lot of times. Um, but an eagle is an eagle. I mean, I don't care. I don't, I know bald eagles are fish eaters and, and, you know, they eat a lot of carrion and so do golden eagles too. But a golden eagle is something, if, if, if it came to hunting, I, I would pick a golden eagle all day. They, I mean, there are people who hunt roe deer and in England, in Europe and foxes. Um, there's a guy in, I think it's Oklahoma or Texas. His name's Titus. He's kind of a kind of a weirdo, but you can find him on on YouTube. He's a, he's a freak. Well, uh, man, he's just a goofball. If you watch the videos and you'll say, "Oh yeah, I know what Billy's talking about." He's a weirdo, but um, he obviously can train his his birds really well. So I don't take anything away from from that. But he actually hunts coyotes and jackrabbits at night with a, with golden eagles and an African crowned eagle. <laughs> That's yeah, crazy. he drives, he hauls ass through these wide open fields in Kansas and stuff like that, where you can just, he drives these military vehicles at as fast as he can, 60, 70 miles an hour, spotlights and hunts down these jackrabbits and he, he's hunting for coyotes, but if jackrabbits are there, he'll let his uh, eagles out. So the eagles have a head start because they're already on this vehicle driving 50 to 60 miles an hour takes the hood off of the eagle's head, throws the eagle out, and the eagle flies down whatever animal it is, jackrabbits or coyotes. They actually catch coyotes like that. Wow. That's great. I just know that it was a bit unnerving. We, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, time. they're scary as hell, man. I, I mean, I, yeah, you don't want to mess with an eagle. They can, they can hurt you really bad. Like, you're going to be in the emergency room. <laughs> we were up. My wife and I were up kayaking up in like northern, uh, the northern lower peninsula here in Michigan, and it was up by Glen. Oh, no, time out, John. Time out. You said the northern lower peninsula. <laughs> yes, the northern section of the lower peninsula. Okay, all right, I got you. I got you. <laughs> so if I say up north, I'm like usually I'm, we're up in the UP, but I, was, I got you. Okay, wasn't okay. quite that far. I didn't cross the bridge, so but no. Okay. So we're up by it's it's called. Uh, our sleepy bear dunes or, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's the West coast by Traverse city. Well, we're up there and we're kayaking in this little lake. And all of a sudden I looked up and here was this huge bird. I'm like, that's a freaking golden Eagle. But there's like, they're not normally in Michigan, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we're, I'm like, it's, I mean, this thing was huge. Like it's the wingspan looked like as wide as mine, you know, like seven feet almost yeah and it came down and i swear it was eyeballing my wife in her kayak i'm like holy shit that thing wants you for dinner and you know (laughs) and it flew up and then landed up in a tree and like the whole top it was a big old huge like white pine and the Mm -hmm. whole top of this tree just shook like when it and then it took off and it sounded like the freaking tree was coming down but then i looked it up and that that they've had like several golden eagles in the past and they're like confirmed by the dnr and everything else where it's like kind of their route as they're migrating oh really that cut across that like tip of michigan so i'm like in that exact area like on that lake so i was like you know so most likely you you know you saw one and it's really cool because it's really special when you see something like that let's say a golden eagle 
um, in, in an area that they typically, maybe they just barely migrate through, like you're right on the edge of it, right? Yep. Um, around me, it's very seldom to see fisher um, in, in the wild. It's, you'll see them a little bit more in Pennsylvania and up north, but, you know, it's, it's not typical to see them. Right. But then in other areas, people are like, oh, yeah, we see fisher all the time. Well, where we elk hunt, you know, they're like, oh, damn, golden eagles, hate them. You know, that we see them all the time. I'm like, oh, I've seen like two or three golden eagles in my life on the East Coast. And out there, I mean, elk hunting, I've seen them. I see them every year when I go out. Yeah, It's it's wild. And, and you know, it's funny. I get more excited seeing a golden eagle or something cool where I live or, you know, where you're talking about, where you never see them. You get so excited about it. Wow, it's so cool. I saw that. But then you go somewhere like Utah when they're like a dime a dozen. You're like, ah, there's another one. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> you know, it's it's wild. But seeing one up close like that, you know, a bird that big and massive is is impressive. And I, I bet your wife wasn't exactly uh, comfortable <laughs> seeing a bird that big fly down at her. Yeah, it was like literally. It was like just right right above us, and it was. I swear, like it was eyeballing her. <laughs> so, so what would prompt uh, an eagle to like attack somebody? Because one of our patreons, Stan, he's in Washington, and he lives, I believe, on a river. I think that's what he was saying today. But he was telling a story that he was out like right at dusk shooting his bow, and he went down and pulled an arrow out and got hit in the back by an eagle, and it like caught him and everything and then he like tried to scare it off and he ran like was walking back and all of a sudden he heard that same like whoosh, 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 and he turned around and the eagle was coming back and he let us go like hey get out of here <laughs> like like he was bleeding and everything and so why you know why would that happen I would, like in the wild like a wild eagle that is so incredibly rare to the point where i'd say i i, I it would be difficult for me to say that it could happen now, having said that, if a but this does happen more than you want to believe, people will take eagles, especially young eagles, illegally and try to raise them. And they feed them and feed them and feed them. They become imprinted and things like that, where that eagle then sees humans as a food source. And then the eagle becomes a dangerous problem when it grows up, so they release it. And then once they release it into the wild, it goes around looking for humans because humans give them food. And if you don't give an eagle food, it gets pissed off at you and hits you. That absolutely happens. Hmm. You know, absolutely. So if, I would imagine if my best guess would be that someone either lost a bird or released a bird that was possibly imprinted on humans. That would be my best guess. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I've and I've heard about it like a few different times from like owls. Like so, with like yeah, bow owls. hunters that are like sitting in a tree, not mm -hmm. moving. Like one of my buddies, his dad got knocked out of a tree by a, an owl because he wasn't wearing a safety harness. But he got he was just sitting there and he he saw the owl. And the owl just must have picked him up, just moving slightly. Right. And then when he brought his eyes back, the owl was right there, and it hit him in the head. And lucky he didn't lose his eye. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it 
it clawed him and he ended up falling out of the tree and getting all messed up. Well, it happened to my my buddy up in the UP, Larry. Same thing. This is like years ago. He's like, we didn't even have tree stand. We just climb up in a tree. And he's like, I had this little, like, just a stocking cap on. And he's like, you know, we're sitting there and I'm just turning my head slowly. And all of a sudden, something hits me in the back of the head. And, I, you know, next thing you know, I mean, it's like trying to rip my head off. And he's like bleeding everywhere. I had claw marks in me. And it was owl. But. So with owls, what I've heard, and I, I haven't done any research to, to prove this or not, but I've heard that owls hearing is so good that they can hear you blink. <laughs> so, so, so you think about that when you're in the woods, your body is still, right. you're, you're trying to hunt and you're blinking, you know, you maybe do a little scratch on your beard and, you know, you're making these little tiny itty bitty noises that are eerily similar to a mouse, for example, you know, and, and owls as wise as people say they are, are not very intelligent critters. They're like box of rocks, dumb. So they're hardwired to when they hear or they're stimulated in a certain way to attack it. You know, they don't, they're just seeing maybe, and you know, a lot of times they're just seeing like a, you know, a, a tiny piece of you. Exactly. They're not looking at you as a huge being, you yeah. know, that happened that, to my, same thing happened to my brother. This was years ago too. He was sitting rifle hunting, sitting at the bottom of a tree. And I remember him telling the story. He was like sitting there and his hands were cold, but he, so he was just like moving his, his trigger finger just to keep it like warm so he could feel it. And that was the only thing he was moving, like just sitting there and he was just, you know, flexing his trigger finger and all of a sudden an owl come in and like, but he seen it like was coming right at and he just like screamed and threw his hands up and then the owl, you know, <laughs> it flared and turned with it like, holy fuck, this is something huge. It's not just a little freaking rodent, but maybe he was flicking something else. I don't know. But. <laughs> <laughs> My old man got hit in the face by a hawk one time. He was wearing a head net and got hit in the face by a hawk. I mean, it happens. They're like I said, they're not brilliant, you know. <laughs> but you know, they, their eyesight and their hearing is like hardwired to their brain to kill. You know, it's like it, it's like you know when the when the doctor hits you below the below your kneecap and you involuntarily kick your foot out. They involuntarily attack when they when their brain senses that there's prey there that they can kill. Right. It's like a reflex to them. It is very much like a reflex. Yeah. There was another one. I think it was Frank telling me about they were at a shoot at our club and the kid was in like the pro division. I don't know if it was Frank or not, but whoever it was, they, uh, the guy, the kid was in the pro division. He was shooting terrible. Like how, how are you even shooting? Like, you know, he's in the five ring and stuff and, he was shooting left-handed, and they got to talking. And he's like, and, "Well, he had a patch on his eye. He had, mm-hmm. was hunting, and the owl come in and hit him, and it. He lost his dominant eye, so he had to. And, but he was a like a pro shooter, so he had to switch up and start shooting a left-handed bow, and getting adjusted to shooting. <laughs> well, obviously now that was his dominant eye since his other eye was gone. But I mean, pretty crazy story. Yeah, that's insane. I, you know, my my daughter is right-handed and left-eye dominant, so I just, 
made the decision, all right, you need to shoot left-handed. So that's what she shoots now. But that's got to be difficult to be able to change. You've been doing something a certain way your whole life, and then all of a sudden you have to change that right. drastically. And you're a pro, so that's even... And you're a pro. That's yeah. your li- I mean, that's your livelihood. Yeah. It's like, oh, holy boy. Can cow. someone give me a handicap here? Right. <laughs> well, I used to be pretty good, but... Well, what happened? Oh, I lost tonight. Oh, okay, yeah, you get... <laughs> All right, here's an extra 50 right. points. Here you go. I'll take that excuse. <laughs> that's me playing golf. <laughs> like, to kind of circle back on everything, you know, Billy here is the the other half of the the hanging hunt he's the other half of uh the hunt urban or you know whatever the the main faces and i feel like he's like the most interesting man in the world like when you when we went into when we went into ata you know like i think we said said this before but you know taylor looks like this this frat boy that just rolled off the golf course in a first light hat you know, he literally is. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm 100% just saying. is exactly what he is. <laughs> and then, then you've got Billy here in a like a cashmere like trench coat with a scarf on and a sweater. And I'm like, who in the world is this guy? Like, <laughs> well, I actually what I was thinking is I was like, why does Taylor need a why why does Taylor need a handler? Like like <laughs> freaking like you want to talk to me? Talk to him, you know. <laughs> but I mean, it's just it's just super interesting. And like where I was going with like that primitive pursuit stuff, it's like one of the questions I I had for you, and I I don't think I've ever got to discuss it. Is it seems like you know your dad and your brothers and your your family are really big into hunting, but they seem to be more like on the traditional side, and then. You know, like the last time we talked when you were, uh, you know, you were shooting the freaking super mission crossbow, you know, like one of these, these cross guns, um, you know, down in Africa or whatever. And it's like for your family, you should be shooting like a medieval, like crossbow, you know, like, right. like one that like cranks, like, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, this is really how I look at hunting i i i'm a hunter just like i'm a fisherman just like i'm an outdoorsman and i i want to be involved in any way that i can i'm you know with falconry you know my the 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 quintessential falconry would be peregrine falcon a bird dog wyoming sage grouse you know, that's, that's, that's American falconry at its finest. Having a peregrine falcon, a thousand feet, 1500 feet in the air, your bird dog goes on point, you flush it, the peregrine falcon comes down at 150 miles an hour and kills a stage grouse, right? That's the quintessential American falconry. I don't have the time and effort to, you know, the, the, to be able to do that. So I have a red tail that I take out three to five days a week for squirrels and rabbits for an hour or so a day, because I, I don't live in Wyoming and I don't have time to train a bird. Dog. Mm-hmm. So that's the same thing as, you know, when it gets into bow hunting, primarily, I would say 98. All right. I'll even say 90% of the time. I have either a compound or my recurve in my hand when I'm hunting. 
I will take a crossbow out sometimes if, especially if, if I'm on a, in a place where, um, I really need to knock some deer down. And it's, it's kind of one of those deals where it's, we're not hunting here. We're, we're culling. Um, a lot of times I'll take, I'll take a crossbow and I, you know, I, I don't go bad for, it, you know, because I'm trying to do more of a job than I am trying to fulfill a, you know, look, there are different reasons why we hunt, right? We go out there and we hunt because we enjoy our time, the camaraderie, we enjoy the challenge and, and we, we enjoy the way that we want to do it, whether it's with, you know, a recurve or with a compound or whatever. And there are also situations that I'm in, the Taylor's in, that sometimes we have landowners that they have, you know, a couple acre property and they have 20 or 30 deer coming to their property every day, morning and evening. And you knock a couple out with your compound because, you know, it, it, it's a target rich environment and the deer are starting to get wary of you and you get a lot of pressure and you're like, all right, well, you know, I need to, I need to be very selective and, and how I'm doing this, especially on super, super tight property. So I'll pull out a crossbow, especially on something like that, where it's more, I'm not doing it for the challenge. I'm not hunting in that situation for a challenge. I'm more helping a landowner reduce the herd and I'm feeding hunters for the hungry. Right now, when I go out and hunt for myself, when I go out and hunt with my, with my dad and my brothers and my buddies, Oh, a different story. I mean, I, I can't, I don't think I've ever taken a crossbow or even a gun, even like gun season, like open day of gun season. I go out with a bow, you know, it, it, I think it all depends on the way or, or the, I, not the way, but the, the reason I'm going out and, and hunting. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's a great way to uh, to explain it. And I wasn't really trying to bust your balls. I was just simply saying I, I was interested because, like I said, it seems like, you know, you were collegiate wrestler, extremely competitive. You have a – it seems to be a great relationship with your family and your brothers. And it's like your brothers are always posting about recurves and stuff. And I can't imagine that they don't bust your balls pretty hard about – hundred you know, percent, whatever you're doing. So, <laughs> but, but you know, I'm realistic too. Um, and, and I didn't know it, my brother, especially my brother, Josh, he is hardcore traditional. That's what he does. If he has to pick up a compound, he will grudgingly. Uh, I don't know if he'll ever shoot another deer with a gun ever again. You know, and he might not ever shoot another deer with a compound. I don't know, but he does hunt on these, on these uh, culling properties that we do too, where sometimes it's actually required to hunt with a compound or a, or, or a crossbow, like in our permissions, you're only allowed to hunt with certain equipment, you know? So he'll do that, you know, but in general, does he bust my balls? Absolutely. (laughs) But he also, you know, he wakes up in the morning and he goes downstairs and he makes his pot of coffee and as it's going, he goes down in his basement and he shoots a couple arrows through his longbow. And then when he gets home from work, he shoots a couple arrows, goes and picks up the kids. They have dinner, whatever, you know, they do the family stuff. Everybody goes to bed before he goes to bed. He shoots a couple arrows. You know, I, there are other things that are going on in my life that I'm filling my time with. And he's filling his extra time with shooting his his longbow and i tell you what it pays off because 
the boy can shoot and he can shoot really, really well. And he, he, he puts that time in. I'm realistic in the fact that I don't have the time. No, I'm, let me, let me rephrase because everyone always has time. I'm not, I'm not willing right now to make the time to, to, to focus completely on going trad or going to, let's say an Adelato, like, like Mike from Primitive Pursuits. You know, that dude has, has, um, I think I, I want to say, and I, I can't quote me on this and I don't want to, don't want to say the wrong thing, but I think in another state, maybe in Missouri or some other place, he has actually taken game with a spear or an atlatl. Like that takes dedication and practice a lot more than just with a longbow or recurve and a hell of a lot more than with a compound and infinitely more than with a crossbow or a gun you know so i think the big takeaway is i think people need to be realistic on how much they're willing to put into the practice and effort that they want uh that they are allowed to put in or can put in to a certain um to a certain thing if you don't have the time to shoot a couple times a week then you probably shouldn't be picking up a compound bow. I, I mean, I you guys would probably agree. You got to, you have to be able to shoot and know your equipment a few times a week. With a trad bow, you kind of have to shoot almost every day. With a crossbow, you kind of can probably do it once a month or even less sometimes, <laughs> as long as you know your, you know, probably less. With a gun, you sight that sucker in and make sure it's sighted in, and otherwise, it doesn't. There is no time. You know, so it it all depends on how much you're willing to practice or able to practice and be realistic with yourself. hundred uh, percent. I, I mean, and I see that with the, with the trad bow, like for sure. And I haven't shot it since I shot at the turkey, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, like our season has expired. And then it's like, okay, well, I'm going to do my other stuff. And that's why I'm like, I can't really like dedicate like, like for, for deer or or whatever um because i just am i'm not i'm not ready yet but um mm-hmm. but i just i absolutely love shooting that bow but like i said back to that like that whole thing you just had like this ridiculous you i mean it's kind of like along the same same level like okay well i'm gonna go back in time and shoot this recurve at some turkeys and you said you know what uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have this ridiculous gun built from back in time to uh, end up shooting a turkey with it, right? Yeah, yeah that was uh, that was another boyhood dream that I had along with falconry. So my my grandfather and my father used to go to Pennsylvania on their primitive flintlock hunt, and it was I think it was usually an antlerless hunt, and they took me along with them a couple times, and I was a, a kid. And it was the coolest thing because it was that you go up and there's snow on the ground. I mean, you guys are used to this stuff, but, you know, down where I'm from, when you hunt in the snow, it's a special thing. Well, we'd go up to Pennsylvania, central PA, and there'd be these old cabins with no electricity. And you get your water from the spring and the creek and, you know, wood burning stove and, and, uh, and, and you'd go out on these flintlock hunts where they put on these big drives and you'd see hundreds of deer a day. And, you know, people are trying to shoot them with these flintlocks. And it was always 
it was always a challenge and it was fun. It was a good time. And my grandfather and my father kind of taught me how to use a flintlock and I shot it a couple of times. And, and I always just admired those guns. And I, I was, I just had uh, just, just a draw to them. And I always loved squirrel hunting since I was a little kid. I've, I've loved squirrel hunting. It was my first game animal I ever took was a squirrel. And uh, I, I always wanted a, uh, a flintlock that was capable or, or appropriate for shooting squirrels with. And again, just like in falconry, I, I bided my time and waited and, and saved up a couple couple dollars here and there and and contacted a guy who makes custom flintlocks. And his name is Ed Winger. Um, he's from Virginia, Bealton, Virginia. Um, Virginia or VA Flintlocks is his company. And he makes period, uh, period accurate custom um, guns. Uh, flintlocks, um, mostly flintlocks. I, I don't think he makes anything else, but Fowlers and and um, uh, Jaeger rifles, anything from the most extravagantly engraved and gilded Jaeger rifle that you could imagine, to you know, uh, you know, a, a, a typical um, trade gun uh, he's made, and he makes he's just does incredibly impeccable work. And I contacted him and he said, well, you know, I'm really busy. I'm a one man shop and I don't think I can I can do something until the fall. And this was like in a January time frame of last year. And I said, well, you know, this is my budget. And he said, well, <laughs> you might want to think about getting a kit gun and building it yourself for that budget. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, damn, you know, it kind of kind of really hit me, hit me between the legs. And I said, well, how about if I bump it up, you know, a couple dollars here and there and we got to talking and he's like, oh, you know, I can work with you here. I can do this. And I said, all right, well, I said, you can't start until this date. I said, what if I start give you a deposit on that date? And he said, oh, yeah, that's fine. I said, sweet. That's an extra six months that I can save up a couple dollars, not drink a beer. And, you know, that's a dollar a day. Right. Um, so. So I ended up uh, you know, putting an order in and he had a he had a. He had an idea that he already had in mind. He said, I've got this, I've got a curly maple stock and a barrel that I think would be perfect. Um, basically, I've just been waiting for someone to ask me for this type of rifle. And I said, let's do it. And it's a it's a Lehigh Valley style rifle. It's, it's actually based on an original piece. Um, it has, it's, he made everything on the entire gun except for the barrel and the lock mechanism and, and the flint obviously but everything else is done all the brass work he, he he um he you know created the trigger guard out of a mold and and you know he made everything on the gun and as he's building it he's he's sending me these progress pictures from a block of wood and a barrel and a lock to he's just whittling it down and, and working down and carving it and, and then he gets to the point where he starts carving the bear, the 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 wood, and I'm like, "Wow, look at that! Look at the carving on it!" I didn't think I paid for all this. I hope he's not like triple <laughs> charging me right now, you know. And then he he gets to what I think's finished, and I'm like ecstatic, and I'm ready to like send him like a full payment. And he's like, "Well, I'm still working on this extra carving over here, and and then I have to start engraving 
the metal work. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy's going crazy. He ended up making a beautiful, absolutely exquisitely beautiful piece for me. One that, I, you know, a lot of people have looked at and said, oh, you, you can't actually hunt with that. I'm like, bullshit, man. I bought this gun because I want to hunt with it. And he finished it just in time for me to take it on a turkey hunt. I, my father uh, has, has shot a, I, I think he's shot all of the turkeys in, in the U.S. And he went down to Mexico. He hasn't shot a shot, shot it. Wow. <laughs> he hasn't killed the oscillated turkey in Mexico, but like the Rio and the Golds and the, and, and the Goulds and the Merriam and the Easterns. But he had never, uh, never killed an Osceola. Um, so we went hunting in Florida and my brother Bobby went with me and his, uh, his son, Seth, and they, they were going for hogs. Dad and I were just going for turkeys and we went down and, um, we had an opportunity to hunt turkeys. And, and at that point it was, or this past year, it was, uh, illegal and private land to hunt with a, with that muzzleloader down there. So I was really pumped. And I talked to the guy who made the, made the rifle and asked him if he'd be able to have it finished and ready before this hunt. He was like, Oh yeah, absolutely. And he got it, set it up. And, and I took it out and took it to my house. And, and I was just enthralled. I'm like, man, should I really actually take this thing? And there were two things that were bothering me. One, I didn't want to mess it up and scratch it up and beat it up. And two, it's so pretty with the Turkey see it, you know, <laughs> I'm like wondering if this thing's going to shine in the sunlight. Right. And I, I set up a load and I, I shot it and I shot again and I noticed my, my groups at 30 yards were, you know, about a half an inch groups. So I shot again and I was, I'd say about a three quarter of an inch group at 30 yards. I said, huh. and I, I mean, I was, it was dead on balls. I didn't move the sights at all. There's only at the front sight that you can really move anyway, but um, I'm sorry, the, the backside you can move, but, the front side you can file down, I guess, but um, it was dead on balls right away. So I took it down and to that to, to Florida and had some pretty good luck. I shot a shot an Osceola at 35 yards and with a 36 caliber flintlock and it put it down. It it ran 10 yards and piled up. It was it was awesome. It was it was so cool. It was so cool. It was it. All right. So I've got to tell you this story because. For the folks that didn't hear me tell the story on on the Hang and Hunt podcast, this is something I learned from the dude that we went turkey hunting with. His name is Sage Kemper. It was it was a really incredible technique that he used to bring these birds in. First, we were setting up. I, I was clearing shooting lanes with pruners, and these two gobblers are coming in to to our decoy. And he saw them while I'm pruning. He's like, they're, they're coming, don't move. And as soon as they got around, there were some palmettos there. He's like, all right, get down, you, you, you're free. So I crawled behind a tree, was able to load up. And while I'm loading, the flintlock is not exactly an expedient weapon to, to load, right? <laughs> you know, this is the worst scenario. These birds are like rushing in from 50 or 60 yards away and I'm trying to pour powder down a barrel. It's like all this movement and I'm stuck behind a tree being fat and they're right there at the decoy and I can see them and I've got to freeze and they, they start moving off cause there's no 
activity going on. You know, they, they know that this is not natural and they get away a little bit, finally get loaded up, but they're now at 50 or 60 yards and I wasn't comfortable with that shot. So this dude is crazier than shit. He takes a fan, turkey fan, and crawls out, out of the brush, out of our like makeshift blind that we made out of natural blind. He crawls out of it and keeps the fan between him and the turkeys. And the turkeys are watching him the whole time. I'm watching them from they're probably 60 yards or so out, and they're looking at him. And he goes over and crawls to the decoy and starts beating on the decoy with this fan like he's another Tom fighting this gobbler decoy. Those turkeys turned around and came running back in, got to within about 30 yards, and I crushed it. So do you shoot right over the, your guide? No, not I wasn't that dangerous. I'm like it was, there was there was a there was about a, a I'd say a ninety degree angle from where he was to where the turkeys were. So I was definitely not even close to where they they came in right at us and then took like a hard left and went away. And he went out to the decoy while they were away, but starting to come back in. That's when I shot them. So. Just to paint that picture, no, I didn't shoot over his <laughs> yeah, head. Because the picture I had in my head was your, you know, yeah. set up on the decoy. Right you know, that, that's how accurate that gun is. You know, <laughs> I can just shoot right over his shoulder, right? No, no, I would never, never take a shot like that. But I was well away from him, you know. But but they were coming back in. In fact, that's one of the things that he said. He was like, "Man, I was just waiting to hear you shoot because they were starting to come in, and I didn't want them to come in too close to me in the decoy." <laughs> and that you know, that's the only shot you had. Uh, it was it was a cool hunt, man. And and there were we dude, we saw so many birds down there. I, there was one morning I saw over twenty gobblers, not including the hens and jakes that I saw over twenty gobblers. Well, that seems like a target-rich environment. I could probably miss Dude, 15 of and them. And hogs everywhere. <laughs> I, I shot a hog down there with the flintlock. I shot it. I shot another hog with uh, my my brother had brought this 300 blackout um, AR, and um, he he shot a hog with it, and his son shot a hog with it, and we were driving around and and trying to find hogs that we could stalk because they are man. That's a blast to go and and go spot them and then just go stalk and i only brought my flint lock on purpose because i knew if i brought my bow i would wimp out on the flint lock and try to shoot a turkey with a bow <laughs> i knew i would do that so i said i can't so i only brought the flint lock and i wasn't planning on shooting hogs well my brother had killed a couple hogs and seth had his son had killed a couple hogs and and uh, my dad shot a couple, and I'm like, I'm the only one who hasn't shot a hog yet. So I'm like, well, give me that freaking AR, man. <laughs> so I went out and, and shot shot another hog and got some sausage, and it was delicious. So, was fun so with the turkeys, like a flintlock has like kind of like two puffs, right? Like when the gun goes off, it doesn't like just go off. So how did they react to to that? It was, uh, you know. The the way that the way the gun went off when I shot was almost instantaneous. It was more of a as opposed to a crack 
boom, you know, there mm-hmm. wasn't much of a delay. Uh, the on a flintlock for for those who don't understand, there's a there's a, a charge in in the barrel that actually propels the bullet. And then outside of the barrel, there's a hole in the barrel, a small pinhole. And outside of that, there's a small, shallow pan that you put other powder in. And there's a flint on the actual cock or the hammer. And that flint comes down and hits a piece of metal called a frizzin, showers sparks down into that pan. The fire goes through that little pinhole and ignites the charge that blows the bullet out. And it's a it takes more explanation than it does to actually fire this thing off, right? But um, there's ways to load it, and and the way this gun was made, the the the, uh, the touch hole that that the guy put in, um, and and the way that I loaded it, the flint that I'm using, the combination that I have, it's pretty. It's a pretty fast ignition. Um, so I, I know you've probably seen movies and videos where they. You know, that fire goes off and then it's like a second or two later, boom, the gun goes off. But this wasn't as uh, it wasn't as dramatic as that. It was it was a pretty, pretty quick fire. There was a delay without a doubt. I mean, there's a there's a slight, slight delay, but but it went off pretty quickly. Okay. I mean, hell, I've shot deer with a muzzle loader and like super humid and it's like pop <laughs> like, like son of a bitch. Dude, this year, so there was a primitive hunt in Maryland. It was like the, uh, it was like late, I'm sorry, early February. And it was my dad and my brother Josh came down to to, to hang out with us and hunt with us. And um, we went out and dad had his flint lock and I had a percussion cap, side lock, but percussion cap, like a Hawken, mm-hmm. you know, style muzzler. And I put a cap on and fired off seven times at deer within 20 yards and only the cap went off seven times. And I'm like, what the hell? Dad shot a deer with his flintlock, killed it. Beautiful shot, heart shot on this doe. And this, this property that we hunted, it's uh, my father bought it specifically for sick of deer. And, um we my brothers and i were talking we're like would it, it's great dad needs to be the one to shoot the first deer on this on this property you know he bought it and, you know he, he needs to be the first one to shoot well i'm telling you right now i tried my hardest to kill these chicken deer with my muzzle litter that day and all i could get was the cap to go off and i came home and I looked in the in the nipple on that muzzleloader, and I, I'm like, there's nothing wrong with it. I put a cap on it, and there was a pumpkin sitting out, an old pumpkin from the fall out in my yard. And one one cap went off, and boom, that thing just exploded. I'm like, so I don't know if there was some divine some divine intervention there, or if there was some humidity that went on, but they're not exactly the most reliable at all times. You know, there's a reason why people were smart enough to start using cartridges and smokeless powder right oh for sure john have you ever shot anything with the muzzleloader or hunted done any hunting with the muzzleloader no i've shot a muzzleloader but i've never not a gun hunter i mean back when we started though i mean they really didn't even have there were i mean my dad had an old kit hawkins or whatever it was and frank had one too yeah my dad built one but pretty much no one 
like we didn't do anything didn't we didn't do any hunting with them so we used to go over to the other side of the state uh with one of my dad's buddies and he's one of the guys i'm actually going elk hunting with and uh like it was a big thing like opening day a muzzleloader they did drives and all sorts of stuff and like like kind of like what what billy was saying you know like it was like uh, the one day we saw you know hundreds of deer um but it was only bucks and you know we no bucks you know all does i mean the, 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 the my first my first day my first experience we got there like late and they're like the drivers are already going like just get up there and my dad and i went to this big like boulder out in this field and i swear to god it was like a movie it was like 40 deer came rushing by like you know some of them from me to you away and there's no bucks and then all of a sudden here comes the drivers you know and then there was one deer that got up and went the other way, which was probably a buck, but everybody was just standing around bullshit and you know, and that deer was like and now's my time, you know. But yeah, just that wild. buck had been there done that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've but I think when I started getting out of gun hunting, I would just bring my muzzle loader and a pistol because it was like, Well, this is kind of silly and you know, whatever. Kind of kind of on the same plane, but I haven't gone down like and get the freaking match lock you know that would... <laughs> <laughs> get a little hiss going but you know hey you can always bring you can always bring a bow during those uh during those seasons i mean i think or, or I, don't, I don't know about michigan but i know in virginia and maryland is like for if you want to bring a lesser quote-unquote lesser range weapon or whatever uh you're allowed to so if it's muzzleloader season you can hunt with a bow uh, if it's rifle season, you can hunt with a muzzleloader or a bow. Yeah. So you always do that. Yeah, it's the same. It's pretty much the same rules. You you just have to follow the rules of the gun season. So like if you have yep. wear orange, you got to wear orange. If it's no, if it's antlerless, you know, or no antlerless, then you know you got to follow the got to follow the same rules as the gun seasons. Do you guys think that orange is actually something that? Um, you know, when you're hunting, do you think orange actually deters deer? Do you think it, like, you know, affects the way the deer see you at all? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't. I mean. I, I mean, I'm obviously no biologist, but I thought the deer were, like, colorblind to that. Like, they just see it as a gray, basically. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been busted site-wise while I was, uh, you know, while I wasn't moving. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I And it's funny because I don't think I've ever, like, had to answer that question. I've never really thought about it as being a big deal. I just think about it like... I just don't want to get want, shot. Yeah, not getting shot. So it's like I'd, <laughs> I'd rather... And, like, I even feel, like, weird, like... So for us, like, there's some seasons that overlap where, like, in, like, the late season and stuff where you don't have to wear orange if you're not hunting with a muzzleloader or this right. or that or when we were in colorado you know it was muzzleloader season and and it was bow season and it was like and that when we did the teaching train uh one of the guys that shoots at the club where i was in in the clubhouse talking and you know he ended up going out to colorado bow hunting for elk this year or last year and it was during the muzzleloader and he said he's like you know i didn't even think about it but i'm out there walking around and he's like my my freaking pants and shit were like buckskin and my mystery ranch freaking pack is like buckskin color. So he's like, I'm walking around out there looking like a freaking elk. 
And he's like, I'd, I was sitting down. And he's like, I found this spot on this wallow and uh, sat there and sat there for like an hour. And finally, he's like, nothing. So I was going to, I followed the trail up that th- these elk were on. He's like, all of a sudden I heard something back like at the wallow and I looked back and there's a freaking dude with his muzzle loader pointed right at me. Like, no. yeah. Like he's like, he, like I was in his freaking scope. Like, you know, if it's brown, it's down. Like, and he's like, there was two of them and they were both supposed to be wearing orange and one guy wasn't wearing orange, but that I means the whole thing. But I'm like, well, point you know he might want to wear some orange and, or definitely don't wear the fucking buckskin colored shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i did that i mean what was it two years ago i didn't pay attention to the dates you know i'm out doing some preseason scouting come to find out it's the youth and disabled veterans hunt when oh. which is the worst thing because they can shoot whatever uh mm-hmm. you know antlerless there's no it's just there's no, restric- no restrictions. restrictions. There's nothing. So it's like, oh, and then they're, you know, young kids or whatever. They're, they had, they're supposed to be with adult, obviously, but some of those adults, I think, are, you know. But I'm walking around out there, and all of a sudden I see someone in a tree stand. I'm like, with a gun. And I'm like, oh, shit. I'm wearing buckskin, you know, pants and a camo shirt. I'm like, I'm going to get freaking shot. So I'm like, I got to wave at this guy, but I don't want to look like a- <laughs> Well, you know, that's, that's a, that's actually a conversation that I had with Greg, uh, from, from tethered So Greg and Jared came and, and turkey hunted with Taylor and I, uh, what, two weeks ago. And we got them on birds, like right away, like every day they were on birds. And, and in fact, Greg shot one like a hundred yards from a highway, you know, it was like <laughs> urban, urban hunting at its finest and he's killing turkeys, you know? So it was, it was a blast, but we were talking about it because we went to another property that my buddy Peter, uh, he's a, he's a local trapper uh, around me and I do jujitsu with him. Super freaking cool dude. His name's Peter Dalton. Um, I, I said, Hey, you know, Greg's coming up and I need to find another Turkey spot. He was like, Oh, I got you covered. Let's go to one of my favorite spots. So we went up and it was like an 80 acre property. And, Taylor and Peter and I went to one section of the property and Greg and Jared went to another section of the property. Well, a bird, a couple of birds started gobbling and they were kind of sort of in between us. So we all went to the same birds. Well, we got in and, uh, Peter and Taylor and I are sneaking up and trying to get set up on these birds. And Peter says, there's a bird there's a bird i'm like and then we hear a whistle i'm like well okay birds don't whistle turkeys don't whistle right Hmm. so we heard another whistle and we're like okay that's got to be those guys then we saw them move and it reminds me of the time that i was talking to my dad i'm sorry i was hunting with my dad we were turkey hunting and we were going after this gobbler and it was on private land and we were the only ones who had permission on it. And I was a kid and we're going after this gobbler and we get down and we get close enough to where we're going to set up. And I see this turkey's wing like a flapping, you know, and I'm like, dad, dad, there's a turkey, there's a turkey. 
And he said, no, that's a hunter. It was a guy, his hand was gloved, but his fingers were spread. So it almost looked like the end of a turkey wing. I mean, I was a kid, you know, but mm-hmm. your your mind screws you up, you know? Right. And he's he was waving his hand at us while turkey hunting. So I'll never forget my dad telling me, teaching me that lesson right then and there. He didn't give a shit if that guy was, we're screwing up the gobbler or not. He told me right then and there, he said, that's exactly why someone comes up on you hunting and they haven't seen you. You don't move. You make a noise. You say something, you whistle at them, you talk to them, make sure they understand, Hey, there's a human being over here before you move. And it was, it was the very same thing that Greg and Jared did. They whistled to us. They were like, Hey guys, we're over here, you know, before they got up and just started moving. Cause I mean, if you walk up on a realistic avian X gobbler decoy, you know, and you know, you, they, they look just like a freaking Turkey. You know, if, if one's gobbling right there and you get up on it and all of a sudden you come around a tree, there's this gobbler sitting there, you know, right. and someone just moves, you know, you, it, it's, it's a lot more dangerous. So, you know, public safety announcement, yell out screw the gobbler that you're trying to work you know just safety is more important so make sure you you yell out or something as opposed to just moving first waving is a scary thing because i i I witnessed it firsthand i I thought it was a wing i thought it was a turkey wing yeah i think we can i think we can all agree that we've all shot a decoy once or twice, right? <laughs> all of us? All of us? Well, how about, or, I think um, one of hmm. us. <laughs> hey, I've shot duck decoys before, but I at least, yeah, yeah, I've shot duck decoys. <laughs> yeah. I've almost done it on purpose, just like at the end of the hunt, just pissed off, like put one through the decoy. But yeah, I, John, I have done that before. <laughs> I had there sometimes on these uh, damage permits, we'll hunt in the, in the springtime and we'll use fawn decoys and you'll put a fawn decoy. And this is no joke. We'll, we'll put fawn decoys out in the spring and we'll try to bring in like, you know, you have deer that are expecting. And if, if it was from a, Strictly a culling standpoint, but yeah, that's a you know, that's a different story. I don't personally like to do that. I'll try to if a if a yearling comes in who's not expecting, oh yeah, well, it's game over. That's a lot of times what, what I'm targeting in the springtime. Right. But they'll come into these fawns, these fawn decoys, and they're definitely I've I've got a fawn decoy right now. I'll take a picture of it and send it to you. It's got a perfect x right through the heart because it was sitting there at 15 yards and i didn't see anything and i just said well i want to practice on it and i zapped its ass <laughs> it did, it wasn't a long blood trail <laughs> so where are you guys at right now for for deer hunting out there is it is it still on yeah it, it actually just ended for the uh the urban season uh last let's see not yesterday but the saturday before saturday or sunday before um, and right now the, uh, the damage permits or the kill permits are starting. Um, we, I, I don't pers- I'm not assigned to any personally right now, but Taylor and I are actually meeting a brand new client here this week. We're supposed to do it tomorrow, but he can't do it, uh, you know, time frame wise. So sometime this week, we're going to get signed up on a brand new property on kill permits and, um, and then 
we're going to start hunting. I'm, I'm going to finish out the turkey season. I may deer hunt one or two times before, you know, this the turkey season ends here in a, a week or two. Uh, but I, I, I took off the full month of April uh, of, tur- of deer hunting uh, in order to just focus on turkeys. Um, but, yeah, we're going to get right back into it as soon as the, the KPs start up again. That and, sounds uh, so weird. <laughs> I, took the, I, know, I took some deer hunting is. off for April. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's it's a different. It's a whole different ball game. You know, you don't go out. I don't even. I don't even get into a tree until like I don't like like in June. I don't. I won't even get into the tree until seven o'clock, like seven p.m. That's when I get in the tree right. to hunt. You know the. The big issue with it is you shoot a deer. If you've got a track for more than, you know, 20 minutes, you're getting home at 1130, 12 o'clock at night, you know, and 5 a.m. when 5, 6 a.m. when I've got to be at work, that comes pretty early. And there's only one or two butcher shops who take deer during this time of year for hunters for the hungry. And there isn't one of them that's open at, 10 or 11 o'clock at night so during that time i've got people on call that take deer like either folks who um like supply to needy families i've got i've got a couple dudes who like we'll, we'll give them deer and it's all it's a process already they 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 call a couple different families those families come over and that deer is gone within an hour or two and they're taking it home and it's, you know, in refrigerators and freezers, you know, and, and so they take care of it pretty quick. Otherwise, if I don't have, if it's too late or I don't get that kind of connection, I, you know, I've got a, I've got a butchering system at my house that is house too. We just, we go and we skin them, we put them on ice and coolers. And then that's the big thing is, is once we get them skinned and quartered, then I put mine on ice and I open up the drain on the cooler and just let it drain. And I can leave it in there for five, six, seven, eight, ten days, as long as I just keep adding fresh ice and let the water drain out so it never sits in water. It just sits on ice. Man, it's like aging a deer. It's like a wet aging, you know, as opposed to dry aging. But no bacteria grows on it or anything because it stays, you know, 32 degrees. And and really, it it takes a lot of the blood out, and it does take some flavor out of the deer, uh, out of out of the meat. Um, but on the other hand, it's extremely tender. We just ate uh, tonight. We just we just ate um, uh, a front shoulder and a uh, you know the football roast like that. I don't know. I think it's yeah. called like the sirloin. But I did those, and those had been on ice for like seven, I think seven or eight days. Uh, without you know i didn't i just left them in the cooler let the water just drain out and for seven or eight days yeah they just uh and then took them out vacuum sealed them and then threw them in the sous vide ready to go (laughs) that's that's a good way to do it but i mean right now shit i'm at the point where i'll i'll gut a deer in i mean two or three minutes i'm it's completely field dressed and then i'll get from when once i hang the deer to it being quartered in on a um you know in a cooler or in a fridge oh man 25 30 minutes from i mean fur on it to 
I'm going to bed and washing up. It's probably 30 minutes. Cool deal. That's, you know, it, it just reminds me of like Warren Womack talking to him and, you know, he's like, yeah, and the, you know, there's a couple, you know, he's got it all timed down to, you know, eight minutes or so. And the, that was one yeah. of the interesting things that, you know, talking to Taylor, you know, cause Warren was like approaching 400 deer killed and, and, you know, he's got all the stories and, you know, all the documentation and Taylor's like, yeah, that I, I, I don't keep track. It's, it's more than that though. <laughs> it's, it's like, Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. We, there's a couple, there, there's another dude who I know and he's another, another dude. I, look, we're in DC. So you think about all the people who work for the government around us, but there's another guy who works um, in DC. I'll just say that. And he, um, uh, he, defense, type of dude right um he's killed uh, well over a thousand deer well over a thousand deer at 100 percent thousand deer uh, i mean without a doubt now he is how do i say this he's not exactly um dis- uh he doesn't have any discretion <laughs> if a deer walks in if it's brown i don't care what it is He's shooting, you know, and he is, but he's a hell of a shot, man. His recovery rate is like 99.8%, like stupid, ridiculous, you know, but I mean, that's, that's what you get when you shoot that many deer, you know, right. You learn so much, you know, I I was talking to my dad one time years ago about just what I've learned from shooting a lot of deer. And it's, it's more, you learn about the body positioning and how and when and where to shoot them that most people don't get. You know, you have to make mistakes to be able to, to learn from them, right? You know, you, you have to be able to pretty much, I mean, every deer I shoot, I give it, you know, field dressing and I give it an autopsy. And then I come back and I think back about, about uh, you know, what the situation was and why certain things happened. And I've, I've seen some things I've seen arrows go through deer in certain ways that no one would ever believe, but I know it happened that way because I witnessed it. I was the one shooting and, and like, you know, there's, there was a deer that I shot, you know, my dad was hunting this one area and this big doe kept busting him and he was getting frustrated and he got pissed and he said, go in there and kill that doe. So I went in there and she came in and she was at 40 yards and she's, she knew, she knew exactly where it was. I mean, she, I don't know. I think she was seeing us. There was a certain time from our vehicles to where we were getting to the hunting that the, the vegetation was a little thin. I think she was betting in an area that she could see us. So she'd circle around to where she knew we were, where the only place we could hunt and she would go pinpoint us. Right. Well, she got in and she was just on the edge. She was at 40 yards and I shot and my arrow hit her and I knew I smoked her. She ran, took off and died right away. Well, when I went over and recovered her, my arrow had entered like almost in the brisket. It was super low, like a, like a low, low heart shot brisket, but it came out and it actually hit her shoulder blade on the opposite side high almost like I shot her from under her, but she had dropped and was springing away and like 
like jumping away from me almost parallel to the ground when the arrow hit her and it's it's just crazy things like that that i've seen and 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 the taylor's seen we've that we've done because of so many arrows that have been through deer you know with us that that um it, it's sometimes it's hard for people to really believe like oh that didn't happen like actually you know it, it, crazy as it sounds it did you know frank's son chris you know, it's funny because he's, he's, all the deer that he's killed, I've been with them or like on the same hunts, you know, so we, mm-hmm. we took him up to our property in the UP and, uh, he, I mean, this is one of his like proudest moments, you know, he went out and he found the spot and set up and the deer came in just like he wanted to. And it was just this little doe and, uh, he shot it and the deer, He's like, I shot this deer like right behind the front shoulder. It ran, you know, 30 yards dead into a tree, like, like squared up this tree, this big old crash. And then it's laying right there dead. He's like, I'm so ecstatic that that happened, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we get the four wheeler and we go down there and we're like, okay, let's check this out. And we're like, you probably shot it in the ass or something. (laughs) <laughs> and he's like, no, I smoked it. You know, I mean, it was perfect shot. Well, we, we go up there, we get this deer in the headlights. We flip the deer over and it, I was looking at John's arrows behind me because the, it was one of these cheap carbon express, like the old with green and white, like four inch fletchings. The ones from mm-hmm. like Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> and it's got green fletching sticking out of its ass. It's out of its hind Ooh. quarter. And he's like, and and the arrow's buried in there, you know. And he's like, he's like, I didn't shoot it there. I don't, I don't know what happened, you know. Like, and then mm-hmm. we look behind the front shoulder. Well, what had happened was he shot through the deer, and it stuck the arrow in the ground. And the deer, when the deer turned and flipped over, it busted the arrow and fell on it and stuck it in its ass. <laughs> Jeez. But it was just so funny because we're like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, and then we flipped it over and there was the fletching sticking right out of it. And so, but when we cleaned it up, you know, there was, you know, three blades right behind the front shoulder, passed through Uh the whole works. But that's where that half of the arrow ended up. Yeah, but you never, ever, ever, ever admit to him (laughs) that you saw those three blades behind the shoulder. Oh, but he was so, just beside himself. There was a, um, the very first time that I went to Africa was in South Africa. And we were, we were, we were on our way to go hunt for whatever, you know, because it's a target rich environment. Well, there's this little itty bitty antelope called a steam buck. And it's the size of like a giant jackrabbit or something. I mean, they're itty bitty, teeny tiny. And, we saw one as we were driving. They were like, hey, let's jump out. Let's see if we can go shoot this thing. So I went out and took a shot. And before my arrow even got there, this thing was running away. So I'm like, ah, oh, well, great. I went over, got my arrow, and you know, took it back and went hunting. A couple days later, we were generally in the same area, and we saw another one. And the PH is like, all right, let's go, let's go shoot this one. So I get over, put a little stalk on, and the thing's watching me the whole time. And I drew and I shot, 
And again, same thing happened. As I shot, you, the thing must have heard it. And as soon as it heard that arrow, it took off. And it it, it jumped, and it, it kind of turned and jumped. And as it jumped, it jumped into the arrow. <laughs> and the arrow hit it and spined it. I'm like, oh, my God. Holy <laughs> shit, I can't believe that happened. So we went over to it, and... You know, it's fine. It's still alive. And we I put it out of its misery. And, and we looked down at it, and its ear had a perfect X in its <laughs> ear. And I'm like, look at this. Look at this. And then I realized that was the perfect size of my Slick Trick Mag broadhead. And then I, I looked at him like, well, this, this blood's dry. It had been from when I shot the day or two before. It had perfectly pierced its ear and put an X in its ear. And that deer, that God, it's not a deer, it's an antelope. Uh, but that antelope, I've got a full body mount. And you can actually see on the mount, you can see where the X is on its on its ear. <laughs> That's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and this is a wild animal that I mean, there's no fence or anything. It's not like it's, you know, it was just it had its territory and wouldn't leave. And a little side note, back to falconry, there is a chick, her name's Lauren McGow, and she lived in Mongolia with the nomads and learned how to hunt with golden eagles there for coyotes and wolves and different uh, hares and shit like that. Um, and she's known as the eagle falconer. Like, she was on 60 Minutes and all this shit. Um, she actually goes to South Africa with an African crowned eagle and hunts for those same little antelope, the steam buck, with an eagle. <laughs> so how do you get on that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I really want to. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to. Well, look, we've got Sika deer in Maryland. And, you know, if I just had unlimited resources and I had the opportunity to be a, an eagle falconer, I would definitely get a big female golden eagle. And I would hunt sick deer with it, without a doubt. I think that would just be badass. Well, when you get but, your yeah. master license, there you go. Yeah, I don't know, man. The thing is, man, if you're an eagle falconer, that's your life. That's your entire life. Like, I would never be able to bow hunt again. It's just, it's it's that time consuming. It's that much. You spend your life doing that. If, if you or a golden eagle falconer, that's what you are. That's what you identify as. I mean, imagine imagine if, you know, John, like, for example, like your fishing trip, by the way, it was epic down in Florida. I was super jolly. Um, but imagine if, like, the only way that you could actually do that would be to, you had to move to Florida and you had to live there, and that's the only thing you could do. You never bow hunted again. Like, you know, it, hey, fishing's great, you know but I don't want to give up the rest of the things that I do in my life just for one, one thing. I think that's kind of where I was going earlier with, we talked about, um, you know, trad bow versus, you know, gun hunting and the time you have to spend to make sure that you are efficient with it. Like, sure. You know, I could become a master falconer and, and eventually, you know, get permission to get a golden Eagle. But if I didn't have the time, and to to put into it, it would be a waste of time. And I wouldn't hunt it and I wouldn't 
be successful with it. Just like, you know, someone who never, ever, ever will pick up their stalker stick bow that they bought, you know, for, you know, really good money, excellent bow, but they never, ever shoot it. They're never going to be effective in the woods. So you just have to be realistic with, you know, what your choice is and how you hunt and, you know, you know, and that goes with falconry or gun hunting or bow hunting or fishing. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. And, you know, if you love fishing, don't expect to go out for, you know, trolling, you know, on, on, you know, the lakes for salmon or rockfish around here. If you're just going to be a, you know, two time a year fisherman, go get a guide for that kind of shit, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause John's over here going like, well, you know, uh, he's already looking at boats for Florida. And... <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it's a hard thing to do, man. You, you have to, you have to make sacrifices. Sometimes you have to kind of pick and choose what you're going to do. Cause look, you know, it's YOLO, right, bro. Yeah. You know, it's YOLO. You only, you only live once. And I'm, and that I'm not really saying that because, you know, Hey, screw it. Do whatever you want. I'm more like you only have one life. You only have a certain amount of time. You know, we've got families, we've got people, we've got our friends, we've got our passions, we've got our activities and our hobbies and things. I, you know, I'm, I'm at the point in my life where I'm, I'm, I'm maxed out on the different activities that I do. Like if someone came out to me and they were like, Hey, we've got this different activity, different hobby. I don't know if you're, yeah, let's just say catching deer with a, a lasso or something like that. And it, you know, I, I don't know. Like, let's lasso some deer. You know, and it would really appeal to me. Like, I'd have to give something up at this point to be able to do that. So that's a perfect transition, though, because I was going to ask, like, what is the catalyst for doing the podcast? And like, it, I mean, because you guys, it seems like have like a legit production. Like, yeah. And so that's got. I mean. John and I know like it, it takes time. It's, you know, it is a commitment. It's all that thing. So how did that come about? And like, what's the cadence that you guys are doing that at and et cetera. It's natural, man. And, and really we've, we've been, we've been hounded by people saying, why don't you guys, why, why don't you have a podcast? Cause like, when we hang out with people, they're like, Oh, we should be recording this right now. I'm like, well, and then, and then, you know, Taylor and I, Taylor and I talk like that. We hang out and we talk all the time. So we just got to the point where we're like, why don't we just record this? Because these are the things we talk about on a, like literally a daily basis. And it's funny because I'll call him and he's, and I'll tell him something. He's like, Oh, don't, don't tell me, don't tell me, <laughs> you know, let's just, let's just record tomorrow and then we'll go and record. So we do that. Now we're more talking, you know, on, on camera and on mic, as opposed to, as opposed to off. And what's really crazy is that we probably have, uh, I'd say, as many episodes that we will never release <laughs> that, uh, you know, just, you know, we'll never make the air because there are certain things are said <laughs> that we shouldn't say in public, you know, I mean, and, oh. and look, we're not crazy. We're not like, you know, breaking the law types of dudes or anything like that, but it's just certain things where, you know, this last podcast that we, that we talked about, we're, we're pushing the edge because, you know, 
you guys know exactly what I'm talking about when I say you you know information about the industry that you know you don't want to you want to hurt people in their <laughs> livelihood. You know what I mean? And right. and there's certain things that you know, and and then there's also stuff that you know we 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 get we get pretty deep on things and you know sometimes we're just like yeah you know maybe we're... And, and and there's other times where other people hear it and they're like all right you know no we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna post that like statute of limitations you still have two or three years on that guys <laughs> you're not allowed to uh <laughs> you're not allowed to get arrested here we're not talking about that <laughs> <laughs> no but we, i mean really it, it's 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 organic to the point that we literally just record it's the same thing you you and I, you guys and I are talking about right now. It's the same way that, that we chat and we BS every time we talk, every time, you know, we've seen each other. You know, it's just that natural flow of conversation. And that's that's just that's how it started. And that's kind of what it's hopefully it stays. You know, it, it's it's hard sometimes. You know, you guys have heard podcasts where it's forced. Right. You know, you guys, you guys have a natural way of you talk to each other and you could tell you guys talk all the time, your buddies and, and, you know, and Ernie and Frank are on you guys, you all know each other. So it's, 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 it's easy, but then you hear some other podcasts and not necessarily hunting podcasts, but other podcasts where, I mean, it's more like these people are like, sitting down like oh hold on time out that wasn't that wasn't one of my talking points we can't talk about that right now <laughs> it, you know and that's i don't like listening to that kind of stuff i like to hear i like to hear people talk i like to just be part of the conversation and the reason why is because when i was a little kid my favorite thing in the world was when my dad had his buddies and they came over to the house or when i was in hunting camp and i was allowed to sit and listen to their stories. And it was almost like I was, I could hear them, I, I, I could hear them tell each other their stories. And they weren't, they, I, I wasn't even there. They weren't telling them really for me. But every now and then my dad would tell his buddy, hey, we got ears here, meaning me. <laughs> Not that I have big ears, but I'm hearing <laughs> everything they're saying. You know, right. hey, we got ears here. You're going to, so they, they, I wouldn't say censor it, but they, it would be good enough for me to still hear and enjoy the story and the conversation. And man, I just, I, I loved those moments. And I, that's what drew me to hunting camps and things like that. It's the same exact reason why I listen to podcasts, why I, I listen to you guys, because I like to hear what you guys are saying. I want to hear those stories in the, the camaraderie it's not even just about the stories it's not even really even about always the information for me personally it's just i like i like the conversation i like to hear that i like to be a part of it i like to hear it but i think like for you guys like uh i don't know i i hope that the guests have gotten it like from this podcast but like i love listening to you talk because like i said like you're just like it's just so freaking interesting to me like like how the hell do you go from birds to freaking flintlocks to you know your whole family shoots 
traditional shit and like you know all, all this stuff yeah yeah uh, man i i really do seriously man i i'm humbled by it i appreciate that you know i because i don't think i'm that <laughs> i really don't think i'm that interesting i just do my shit you know what i mean right. i just do what i do we're gonna see billy um, on the next commercial the most interesting man <laughs> <laughs> man you gotta have a face for that i've got a face for podcasts and radio <laughs> but like seriously like you know Taylor's funny and you know, he's got like both of you have like no shame. And so (laughs) it's to watch you guys on the podcast. Like I, I'm like, Oh, these guys are cool. Like I'm, I'm so happy that they did this. And I'm like, Oh, it's probably stuff that I've already heard or, you know, like whatever. And then like, even hearing like some of the stories, I'm just like in the way that you guys interact, like just knowing like Taylor being so goofy and occasionally like effeminate like i'm like just like <laughs> like just watching it i'm like oh my god these two like it's 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 awesome so if anybody hasn't like listened to it or checked it out on youtube and watching it on youtube is a completely different um uh experience because you get to see like so when 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 taylor is like in the the tethered tree stand little videos that they did and he's like mm-hmm. dressed up in like all these different outfits and and whatnot. It, just take away the outfits, and that's who's sitting down there. He's doing the same facial expressions and goofy voices, and like rolling his eyes and stuff. And it's just hilarious to watch, and to watch you feed off of it. It's just it's hilarious. Yeah, there's uh, it, it is absolutely natural. There's nothing we don't we don't like i don't know there's no production or there's no prep or anything there are times we definitely kind of talk about hey what are we going to talk about today or um we will make notes and we will we do research what we're going to talk about but when it comes to like any any type of joking around or bsing that's just that's just how we act you know and 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 taylor taylor really is he's a fun dude he's real smart guy and you know he's he's shameless he really is (laughs) he's absolutely shameless um but not to the point where where he's like sellout or anything like that and that's what i respect about him he's not um you know he he believes in what he you know what he represents and but you know on the other side of it man he doesn't he's not that serious like we're not we're not like serious dudes we're like we're just regular dudes we're just we just want to go out there and hunt and have fun and bs and you know if we get to get some cool experiences out of this out of podcasting out of just making videos and shit like that man that that's what that's what we want to do that's we're just we just want to have fun it's a whole reason I ever went to ATA in the very first time that I went like six or eight years ago. I was like, this is going to be cool. Let's go have fun. And we're going to tear some shit up. <laughs> like that was, I mean, that's how we roll, man. Well, and it sounds like it's just like the same thing. Like with John and I is like, we would just sit and have these conversations and we are listening to a lot of podcasts and we're like, let's just start recording this. Like we can do this, yeah. you know, exactly. and, and Adam's much better at it than like, he's probably thinking, God, I wish I had a partner like Billy, <laughs> you know, no, Taylor and Billy, he, they feed off each other 
And I'm just sitting yeah. over here most of the time just like, eh, I'm listening. <laughs> Listen to Adam do the interviews and like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but you, you, you've got to have, you know, but you guys have a different, um, you, you, have a, you have a different um, you know, type of podcast that, you know, because, and then also, you also have this, a dynamic where, you know, it's like two really different people. Like John, John and Adam, you guys are both totally different people. Like, you know, and when, when it comes to like the technical pieces that John comes in, it's like, you know, like no offense, Adam, but I mean, he's going to smoke you when it comes to, the, when it, when it comes to anything technical, when it comes to archery and things like that. And if, you know, if you didn't have that, and like if I didn't have someone, you know, friends of mine and things like that who could help me technically in archery, I would, I, I'd, be a, I'd be a complete failure. And it sounds like from from that from your side too. I mean, John has she's building your bowstrings. He's literally like, hey, you know what? Your bow sucks right now. Let me make sure it's perfect. You know, <laughs> you have to have that. And, and but that also that also is, is very evident in your podcast and how you guys work together. It's like, it's not just the archery technical part portions. There's other portions that, that John thinks a different way than you do. And adds a different perspective to the podcast that I think, I really don't think it would work out if you guys, if it was just one of you, it wouldn't be as good as the, the sum of the two. Well, and that's what I keep telling John. Cause he's like, you do all the stuff. And I'm like, I can't, do this stuff yeah. like i can do all the talking yeah and i can you know <laughs> i can i can do all of that but like when when it comes down to any of that other stuff or like you know as john's thinking and like just like taking it all in like when he does have a question then it's like it's like something uh you know profound or you know yep. so, something that that like really needs to be asked you know from there's a different that perspective it's a different he's got a different brain his brain works differently than yours and yours works differently than him you guys have two different perspectives that that complement each other very very well and you know like i said it's the sum of the two that's 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 more it's it's bigger than than just you two individually and i and i think that's a lot of you know, duos or trios or whatever. I mean, you guys have a, a quintuplet with Ernie and, and, <laughs> and Franco when you come in. I mean, that's, I tell you, I, man, I cannot wait till next year. I hope this shit's opened up and we get to, we get to hang out next year. I really, really do. Oh, yeah. Be I'm all, all of you guys with us. I mean, because look, it's the more people, it's like, it's like hunting camp. Hunting camp by yourself is one of those grinds. And it's a, it's like a spiritual experience. It's a, um, you know, it's a personal, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a satisfaction you get for yourself when you leave. If it's with one other person, it's more of a, a bond between two guys, you know, and it's great. We love that. When you have more than two people, it turns into hunting camp and then can't, then it's, it's a team effort and it's a big deal. And it's a, it's a, it, the more people you add to it to a certain point, it can get bad, but the more people you add to it, it kind of, it, it, it enhances everything. 
And, you know, I, I just think we have a good community with the, you know, with you guys and us and the, the folks that we hang out with and talk to in, in the hunting community. I think it's a, we've kind of surrounded ourselves with some pretty cool people and we've, we've really not been, we've not really exposed ourselves to some of the other people that we don't want to be exposed to <laughs> <laughs> with purpose. Well, and I think that that's, that's the point of the whole thing, you know, and I think that that's why I appreciate what you guys are doing because I know like where it's coming from. And I think that, that, that translates as well. And it's like, it isn't a, a look at me, look at me type thing. It's just like, you know, we're going to have fun. We're going to do this. We do have access to a lot of cool people and a lot of cool stuff. And we want to share that because, you know, you know, either people have told you that you need to do that or you feel like, you know, this, this is, this, this needs to be heard or, and I think what's really cool for you guys is for, like I say this, you know, with Frank and I, I just love having it on there is like having this stuff, you know, these, these hunting camps, this digital hunting camp, all of this stuff, but having it documented forever, like just for a legacy piece, you know, for, you know, in 30 years, your kids can go back and listen to, you <laughs> know, might not want them to, <laughs> you know, remember when dad shit his pants at Disney? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I haven't, you know, I don't, I, well, look, we're the first generation to record this stuff in this way. Right. Uh, previous generations have done it all in print mm-hmm. and that's archived forever and ever and ever, mostly. Um, some of it's been lost and it can be lost digitally too, but we're the first generation to have this. So our children and grandchildren and great grandchildren, if they even give a shit at that point, right. or even, even other people, you know, can actually listen back to these are who these people were these, you know, how, how often have you sent an email or a text message and someone takes it the wrong way because your tone didn't convey through text. Yeah, oh, yeah. John texts everything with five exclamation points. So like I had to have a conversation <laughs> with him. I'm like, are you really excited every single time you text me? Or like, what is the deal? Yeah. Are you yelling at me? Like what? I, I never know. <laughs> like but every single text has like exclamation points. I'm like, it's usually when I'm working on something and it's like this fucking piece of shit. <laughs> You know why? Why did he buy this? Or we, we were just talking. He 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 brought that up just Saturday. He's like, "Are you always excited, or or do you just do the like the voice to text? Like, is that why it's always like that?" I'm like, "No, I had that shit in there." When John uses voice to text, it's in bold italics and, and exclamation points at the end. Yeah. Then I send a picture like Kramer of me pulling my hair out. You know, like. It's, that reminds me of the very first email I sent. And the response back was, if you put everything in all caps, it sounds like you're, scre- it looks like you're screaming at me. <laughs> I, I put it in all caps thinking, Oh, this looks cooler than just, just <laughs> normal typing. And, and they're like, uh, that means you're screaming at me. <laughs> oh, Okay. First email I ever sent, I was an automatic failure on the internet. <laughs> yeah, I have to tone it down a little bit. Be like, okay, yeah, he's not quite as upset as I thought he was. Well, I, I just yeah. always get like, you know, John's usually like, okay, 
or this, and then everything's like exclamation points. And then he throws in like a meme every once in a while, and I'm like, he's really not that much older than me. He, he gets it. <laughs> I love those things. Ever since you showed, I'm like, my, I'm sending to my kids all the time. And they're like, what the hell? <laughs> They're like, Dad, that's inappropriate. You're like, that didn't have anything sexual to do with it. And, and they're like, no, that literally made no sense. That's why it was inappropriate, Dad. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah, I get that too. Yeah, yeah. I know my kids are my kids are growing, and I've got a 15 year old. I've got four daughters, 15 all the way down to three, and my three year old is um, she's going to be a, a challenge. <laughs> you may uh maybe you know in 10 years we'll do another podcast and it'll be so how's prison i was like oh it's great i can't hunt here at all but i'm um, doing a lot of working out <laughs> I, i've made a mint sending these pigeons from one prison to the next <laughs> they're a lot easier to train than falcons <laughs> yeah that's, that's good she's 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 challenging and testing my patience yeah I'm at the point with my son. My son's the youngest, and he's going to be 18 this October. So, man, John, you are old. Yeah. Well, I got <laughs> four kids. I got three girls. Then my, my my oldest daughter, she'll be 28 this fall. So, Jeez. I started when I was young, but but yeah, dealing with the kids, that's a whole nother whole nother. <laughs> yeah, ball we'll see how they. Um... We'll see how they how they look at these uh, these podcasts and you know future generations or yeah. you know when they get a little older when they want to look back and see how how we were and you know I just I hope it's at least in a humorous light if nothing else because it's going to be hard to respect me for God's sake <laughs> all the shit that I've done <laughs> I think about like where I actually have um, like the old. I think there were the six or eight millimeter films, but there was no sound on those, you know? Yeah. And yep. so my dad used to race motorcycles and snowmobiles and all that stuff way back before I was, you know, born. And my cousin actually found all these old video or, you know, the actual spools of film in my grandparents' home. She went and I mean, now, now it's, she put them on DVD, which is pretty much obsolete, you know, like, no, yeah, for real. You know, but sitting yeah, there, now you need to convert that. <laughs> exactly. Now I got to put that on a, you know, a freaking SD drive or, you know, a stick. But it's like looking at that, you could actually see how they, you know, they were, you know, interacted, but there was no sound to it. So it's like, it's awesome being able to see it other than just a still picture. But so now with all the, you know, the technology we have now, I mean, with the videos and, our podcast and you know our youtube they can actually see like how adam missed the turkey and shot the decoy (laughs) or how you know these aren't just stories they're really they're real (laughs) and let's watch that video once but yeah it's pretty cool yeah you know it's it it's cool because like you said you can tell the story and then if someone says oh you guess what Here's the video. And they can actually watch the video or hear the story. That's it just adds a little little extra. Because those old eight millimeter or whatever they were videos, my mother was talking about in fact she's gotten some of hers converted. 
And she said, hey, watch these. And it's the same thing. There's no sound whatsoever. But you've got people back then talking to the camera. like, <laughs> And you're like, I wish I could hear what you Right. I wish I could. But it's funny. You can see these people moving and, you know, interacting with their family members and things like that. And they're no longer around, especially right. the folks who are, you know, no longer with us. And, you know, we, it's cool to be able to see them. And you wish you wish you had more now, like you said, with technology being what it is, we can hear these people and and that, that we miss. We can see them, you know, and maybe we hear and see them the same way every time we replay it over and over and over again. But at least we still get to do it. Right. Especially like you get into the older generation, like the grandparents and great grandparents. I remember, you know, my grandpa passed away when I was like eight, and I re- vaguely remember him. But like I'd see, I see him in these videos, you know, or but you can't hear him talk or anything. But so that's what it's going to be great for even younger generations, you know, down the line that possibly didn't even get to meet us. You know, so. Yeah, at least maybe we can give him a laugh. Maybe we can give him <laughs> wow. something. He was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> or or it could be, oh, geez, I was related to that guy. Exactly. <laughs> but can, can you delete YouTube? Because this guy's got a thousand videos on there. It's like <laughs> that Jake Paul or something. Man, could you imagine being one of his like great-grandkids? And you're like, that was my great-granddad. God, jeez. <laughs> Man, that guy? Like, yeah, my great grandma was Cardi B. Oh, oh my God. Come on, bro. I would, man, I'd be upset at that. I'd try to delete some videos. I would not be proud of that. Right. Well, I, okay. I think that's the only thing we can do, though, is like, you know, try our, I mean, it, it's again to the accountability of like, you know, yeah, the, the, the podcast that you're not putting out, you know, I mean, that's. <laughs> Sure. That that's having that that sort of responsibility. So, like, has your fifteen year old like found your YouTube and like, what does she think of the, oh. your podcast? Oh yeah, they all listen to it. They all. I mean, my my youngest, my three year old doesn't, but the other ones all do. My wife does, and she's believe me, man. When it when it airs, she's rolling her eyes, going, "Are you serious? <laughs> like, did, did you did you have to say that? You know, she's, it's, it's, I'm getting that kind of reaction or. Yeah, well, yeah, you, yeah, you think you're funny. I'm like, I'm not trying to be funny, you know, <laughs> just trying to tell the truth. Just tell it how it is. You guys, and then she rolls her eyes. But I mean, they do <laughs> listen to it. And, and there was one day that they were going, my, my wife was taking my one daughter to school. And she called me and she was like, oh, I just heard you say, you know, talk X, Y, Z. And I could hear it playing in the background. And we said something it was maybe mildly inappropriate. And she hit the pause. She was like, I'm listening to this with your daughter. You're not supposed to say that. I'm like, hey, I didn't give like parental <laughs> guidance here. I mean, I'm, it's not like I'm like, you know, this is this is wide open, man. It's just what we say. But no, I, we're we're almost sort of PC a little bit. I mean, we're not like we don't like curse and you know, talk about crazy stuff or anything like that, but you know, we, there's innuendos at least. <laughs> lots but, uh, of lots know, of twenty waffles. Yeah, yeah. There's some twenty waffles <laughs> going on. In fact, my my youngest, my three year old, she does know that that's a bad word. 
Martinez, but she cusses better than any of them. That's the man. That's like, a, I'm almost disappointed in myself for that one because <laughs> when she gets around me, when no one else is around, cause we'll, we'll go on. I've got a Polaris side by side and, and she likes to take rides with me. So, you know, in the evening after dinner or something, right before dark, we'll go look for deer and we'll hop in the side by side and we'll take a ride. And I'll be damned if we don't start going through the gate and she's like dropping bombs. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, honey, you can't say that. And she looks at me like, I know I can around you. And then when she gets around mom, gets around her sisters, anyone else, man, she doesn't, she won't say a cuss word. I mean, well, you can't get her to. But as soon as we get on that Polaris, man, she'll drop a bomb like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> it's a safe zone. It is. Well, it, it all started. I don't stand. It's my fault, 100%. Because I had a Toyota Tacoma, and her name was Juanita. And she was a sweet old bird. She had a zillion miles on her. And my two oldest daughters, when they were really, really little, we used to go ride back roads looking for deer. And the rule was, you're allowed to say anything you want when we're driving around in Juanita. In Juanita, it's a it's a cuss-free zone. You can cuss as much as you want. And my daughter, my two oldest daughters, learned how to cuss driving around Juanita, and they were little. But they would say, they would, they would, I mean, they tried it out like, hey, Dad, look at that shit-ass bitch tree right there. You know, it's <laughs> like, that's that's a bitch-ass shit. Or, you know, just terrible. Like, just, and so I... I said, that's not how you, so I taught them how to cuss in that truck. And yeah, that was, that was the, the, my, my mother, oh, she was just kind of disappointed in me. Like, how could you teach your daughters how to cuss? You know, they called it the cussing truck. And I still wish I had it, but you know, it, it, I think cussing personally is a skill that you have to learn and you have to learn not only how to be, effective at cussing but you need to know exactly when to do it because if you're just cussing all the time f-bombs here and there everywhere it does it does nothing but if you can use cussing to emphasize something really really important in your life well then then you used it appropriately so so i'm just picturing like a scenario in my head where I know you said you got your you and your wife have real good communication or whatever, but like mm-hmm. I just picture like her car's in the shop or whatever, and so she's like, "All right, kids, hop in Juanita. We gotta go to school." <laughs> and then your daughters are just like, "Fuck <laughs> school!" <laughs> like, <laughs> come on, mom, hit that motherfucker. Let's go. What? <laughs> Yeah, no, no I, I, we've we we've communicated enough that she does also know that you know, or back then at least, um, that Juanita was a cuss car because I'd come home and brag about it. Come on now, I'd come home and 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 then my kids would get all sheepish and like, Dad, you weren't supposed to tell them. I'd, I'd look at them and say, Hey, I didn't say that I wasn't going to tell. I just said when you got in the car and you cussed, you wouldn't get in trouble. You're not kidding. Man, when I was a kid, if I would have said damn in front of my parents, there would have been a problem. That would have been a major, major problem. And my kids nowadays, now, you know, what's funny is that they don't cuss. They don't, I mean, they know how to, but they don't. It would be rare 
it's very rare if I ever hear my kids cuss for any reason whatsoever. And I guarantee if my kids cuss, it's appropriate. I guarantee. I guarantee it. They've they've been skilled. <laughs> but the youngest man, she's I don't know, she's gonna be a problem, I think. So so that's <laughs> like similar. I mean, you've heard me talk and you know, my daughter, she's five and she doesn't say any bad words and she like mm-hmm. points it out to people, you know, like you can't say uh-huh. whatever, but not yep. I mean it's just like regular vernacular. And but when she was, you know, I, I don't know, I guess she's still learning but like you know she was learning to speak 18 months you know whatever and uh, they're like you're gonna teach her those words you know it's gonna be that and we were merging on the highway and my wife was driving and she said a couple choice words and mm-hmm. from the backyard uh, from the back seat from the car seat my daughter goes other yucker <laughs> and, yep. and i'm like it wasn't me it was not me <laughs> so it's like you See, she knows that I say the, those things, but when you say it, I'm like, Mom, do you say other yucker? <laughs> <laughs> Mom, I didn't know you also had that kind of a mouth, too. <laughs> so, oh, man. Yeah, what what a wild, like, time to live in. I'm, I'm really happy that you guys are doing the, the podcast, though. Um, and I, people, please go check it out. These guys are are interesting and, and funny. It's not just a, a comedy podcast or whatever. I mean, and they kill probably more deer than John and I've ever even shot at. I seen. <laughs> I was thinking yeah, that too. We, we, there's a lot, of, a lot of deer around us, you know, but no, I appreciate it. And, and if you guys, guys listening, you know, Hey, if you don't like it, let us know also. I want to hear that too, because I'll, I'll I'll BS with you right back, and I won't take any hard feelings. I, I kind of like that too. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, like you guys, man, I really appreciate um, you, you having me back on the podcast again. Um, I I had a blast, like always. I, I I really wish I was sitting right next. I felt like I was, but I wish I was sitting with you guys right now. And we were we were about to go hit the bar or something like that and have some fun. Awesome. So where can everybody follow along with the uh with the podcast? And um I guess if you were going to recommend one of your episodes, if you were gonna say this is where you're gonna get hooked, which episode would you point them towards? Oh geez. Um man, which one was the Disney episode? That's a that's <laughs> a killer right there. I mean, there's a bunch of them. I mean, like You've got the Disney episode. You've got, well, even the episode of the of the cop pulling the AR on me and you know stalking us down in the woods next to that house. You know that's another good one. But there's a there's a bunch of them out there, and there's you know it it depends. Do you want to hear about gear? Do you want to hear about you know making sure you recover every deer you shoot? Do you want to hear about just BS stories? Well, I mean. There's plenty of episodes out there for you, but it's the Hang and Hunt podcast. Um, obviously, on any podcast platform that you guys listen to, uh, I do recommend, like Adam said, check it out on YouTube. Just Hunt Urban. Uh, if you search Hunt Urban on YouTube, uh, you'll see all of our episodes and a bunch of other videos that we have. Uh, you know, with that have to do with archery and bow hunting. Um, so Hunt Urban on YouTube. Um, it's uh, hunt dot 
urban i'm sorry i'm sorry let me back that up it's hangandhunt.co on instagram is the instagram handle uh, my personal instagram handle is william underscore phillips and um yeah i mean that's that's how you find us if you guys want to check us out yeah i mean and like i said any of the podcast platforms but uh i'd recommend youtube that's that's usually how i listen to a lot of the podcasts that i listen to especially if they've got video on them because <laughs> then you can see facial expressions and that matters to me sometimes well like i said the most interesting man in the world billy phillips thanks so much for being <laughs> on here but yeah i think that's about it I, I appreciate it guys thank you so much i, I mean i i hope everyone you know enjoys some of the some of the stuff i get into and i, I hope i'm as interesting as adam says i am so but thanks a lot <laughs> yeah no problem